This show is sponsored by the Bitbox O2 by Shift Crypto. If you're new to Bitcoin, you need to be taking self-custody of your coins. Full stop. Do not leave that shit on exchanges. That's not how you Bitcoin. The Bitbox O2 is a really easy way to get familiar with self-custody. The user interface is great. It's a very simple device to use. So again, if you're new to the game, this is a great first step at taking self-custody. Of course, if you've been in the game for a while and you're improving your self-custody solution, then it's a great option to have in the mix. Uh, for example, if you're using multi-signature signature solutions and you want to use a couple different hard, uh, hardware devices, it has a lot of great features that allows you to do that. Um, and it's just a great product. I've really been enjoying using it. So if you'd like to learn more about it uh, and potentially pick one up, Go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapid fire for 5% off. Also, this show is sponsored by the amazing people over at Bull Bitcoin. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, doing so with Bull Bitcoin is absolutely the most private way to do so. It's a non custodial exchange, which means they don't hold on to Bitcoin, they don't hold on to your Bitcoin. You provide them with an address to go right to self custody after you make your purchase, which is not a common feature uh, in the Bitcoin exchange market, but definitely one that I think serves uh, the customer and the buyer the best. In this way, you don't risk leaving your coins on exchange. Remember, not your keys, not your coins for them to be lost or stolen or otherwise mistreated. Right. You get to take them into your self custody right away. And that's the best way to do it. This is the type of company that really thinks about what's best for its customers and tries to provide it in a very easy and convenient way for them. So if you'd like to learn more, go to bullbitcoin.com and check them out. Finally, this show is sponsored by the Bitcoin 2022 conference by Bitcoin Magazine. If you were at the 2021 conference, you know how incredible it was. And I probably don't have to sell you on how awesome 2022 is going to be. I had a phenomenal time. It was the first uh, chance I got to meet a lot of the people that I'd been interacting with on the show and on Twitter over the preceding 18 months or so, and uh, or maybe a bit longer, actually. And it was incredible. You know, lots of hugs, lots of hanging out, uh, lots of just connecting with other people that understand what's going on here and are part of this revolution and, and building relationships with those people. And then there was all sorts of great speakers, great satellite events a ton of dinners and parties and so many options to just hang out and talk and and uh, you know have a good time with uh, with other bitcoiners so it it looks like this uh, next year's event it's happening in april it's going to be enormous i think their capacity is 35,000 people and for the one in 2021 it was 13,000 people so Clearly, they're going bigger and they're expecting, uh, you know, a bigger crowd. It's right on Miami Beach this time at the Miami, Miami Beach Convention Center. It's going to be lit uh, and I'm definitely going to be there. So if you want to get tickets, there's a number, there's a bunch of different tiers. Um, but at checkout, whichever ticket you ultimately choose, put the code rapid fire, all one word, and you'll get 10% off. Let's do it. Boom. All right. Mark, we're live. Welcome, buddy. Good to see you again. Yeah, thanks, John. So good to talk to you, as always. Um, so we were just kind of, I was just explaining to you why I wanted to hook this up today. And I'll explain it again, because I think it, it probably resonates for a lot of people. And because I want the people I send this to ultimately to understand why I'm doing so, right. And so basically, what, I, what we were just talking about is being Bitcoin bulls for as long as we've been, 
we've tried to impress upon the people in our lives why it's important, the value proposition, and why they might consider allocating some of their savings to this asset, right? But up until the last 18 months, it's been an opportunity, right? The earlier you adopt Bitcoin, the greater the upside opportunity is, at least during its, let's say, monetization phase, which let's say takes out over the next 10 years, takes place over the next 10 years and has done so for the last 12 or so. But now I more and more feel like we're moving into a era and period where it's a necessity. It's not a nice to have, it's a must have. Mm-hmm. And not only is it a must have, but it's like a must almost all in have. Right. Uh, and so I, I struggle to, you know, as much as I try, I think we, a lot of us struggle to impress upon those people in our lives that we, we are trying to communicate with the proper context for all this. Because if people are just looking at it as another hot investment, you know, the flavor of the week or the period, it's another tech stock, it's another Amazon, then some people will just say, yeah, you know, I'm happy with my S&P index. I don't want to take the risk. I get it. Yeah. I'll allocate 5%. But if, if we have the broader context about what's happening now, why it's happening, and where we might likely headed in the future... It, it separates itself from all of those other quote unquote hot investments of the past. You know, yeah. it really is in a league of its own. And I thought we could discuss today just why that is and what these circumstances that are currently unfolding, why they were almost inevitable and why it's important to react to them. Because just as a final piece of context, I mean, I've sent intermittent, you know, family emails throughout the years, right? Like, guys, please look at this. This is the value prop. These are the reasons why countless conversations. I've now sent like the serious email where I'm saying, look, things are deteriorating. We're we're not going, we're not reverting back to a former norm, right? What's happening now, whether it's the invoke, what's invoked is a virus, is climate change, is this political issue, that political issue, the, the fiat unravel is happening. Yeah. Right. And that means you cannot afford not to act. And I know you like your 13% a year on your S&P index, but if you map that to the increase in the money supply and monetary expansion, you're basically flat for the last several decades. You right. know, so it's, it's no longer, I, I'm trying to be more forceful with this discussion because I do think it's imperative. I think if, if friends and family members and loved ones want to survive and thrive into the area, era we're moving into, they, they have to take substantial action now. Don't give me this, yes, I'll put 5% in. Like y- you have to develop a strategy, understand why you're taking it and execute now. And, yeah. and so, you know, I wanted to have you on to discuss the broader context of that whole picture. Yeah, I mean, I, I started making content specifically for Bitcoin. When I got into Bitcoin back in like 2015, um, it was mostly a way to get my money out of the banking system. So I saw a problem. I saw that the banks were insolvent. I saw the problem from 2008 wasn't fixed. Uh, I understood that I was at risk of having my entire life in one banking system or one country. And so I was trying to diversify into other banking systems. That was my problem that I saw. And I felt it was pretty urgent, urgent enough for me to act. Um, Once I learned about... um, you know, so I learned about Bitcoin. It was a way to get my money out of the banking system. I had an urgent need. That was a problem that I had. There was one solution, 
Bitcoin met that. That was a Swiss bank account in my pocket, basically. I went into that. Uh, once I started learning more about Bitcoin and all the problems it can solve, I have had to tell the whole world about it. I've been making content ever since. I did go down the uh, crypto rabbit hole like a lot of other people did. Uh, the last like three years, I've been just focused back onto Bitcoin. And really, my entire content, uh, my message is trying to find one problem in society and matching one benefit that Bitcoin has, because uh, to kind of your point and what we're going to talk about today, um, it, it goes me back, uh, takes me back to like my uh, sales training days. And I've never actually been a professional salesperson, but I've ran lots of companies that had sales, of course. So I've done lots of sales training and marketing. And one of the keys with sales is that what a lot of uh, very beginner new salespeople would do is they'd go to a prospective client when you're talking about trying to convince friends family that they should be interested in bitcoin what someone would do um, if i was going to bring my product to you is i would um, tell you well my product can do this and this and this and my company's this and this and this and we've done this and this and this the founders have done this and the, and the, the client's like whoa i don't care about any of that mm. uh, in sales we'd call that like spilling your candy in the lobby what you want to do the game this is how sales get made is i would sit down and listen to you john and I would find out what is your one need? What's the one thing that you're having a problem with? And then I would match the one benefit of my product to your one need. And that's how a sale is made, not telling you everything it can do. So Bitcoin basically permeates, it's like a string that permeates every area of life. Mm -hmm. And so there's an issue that's bothering you, John, that you're realizing is a problem. If I can show you how Bitcoin can fix that, then you're interested. The problem is that it's not a one size fits all, right? So mm -hmm. when we're trying to tell everybody, uh, well, some people are only concerned about their US dollar savings, but some people are worried about that they got to leave their country and they can't take their wealth with them. Some people are worried that they used to donate to this political organization, but now they're censored. Some people, right? And so everybody has these different problems. And so, and Bitcoin can fix all of them. Uh, but it's not a one size fits all answer. And so anyway, I've spent the last three years trying to dig out each problem one by one by one and try to kind of make videos about that. Yeah, I think part of, I guess, what's motivated my, uh, you know, increased attention on on those friends and family members these days is that those pro like what I'm trying to impress upon them is that, to your point, their perceived problems, like the problems that they perceive that actually do motivate action in them, are going to multiply substantially over the next five years, let's say. Yeah. So in advance of that, do, of that happening and everyone running towards the exits at the same time, yeah. I'm trying to get them to recognize that before that happens. Yep. Yes, benefit from the upside, but almost more importantly, protect yourself and insulate yourself from what's to come. Because all those, you know, and I totally agree that, you know, Bitcoin is different things to different people. And if you're trying to escape Syria with your wealth intact versus just an inflation hedge in the US, it's vastly different. Right. But I think we're heading into an era where there's so much government intervention, where there's so much monetary policy ab abuse, where there's so much um, imposition on, uh, of, by the government on people's lives, whether it's the, their mobility, their banking, their ability to make a living. I mean, my family's in the restaurant business. This, the last 18 months has been absolutely yeah. crushing for them, right? So I'm trying to impress upon them that like that kind of perfect storm is coming for them. And yeah. please realize that before it's too late. Yeah. That's, you know, that's well, what I'm trying to tell them. 
And I think we can tie it all together when we kind of basically, and I use this analogy, like uh, if we had this like giant oak tree with 10,000 leaves and every leaf on, on that tree is a problem. So whether you're mad about your forced lockdowns and you can't run your business, or you're worried about your mobility being restricted, or you're worried about your uh, purchasing power going down or the cost of homes going up or um, the, the control that the schools have over your children and doctrinate. I mean, any problem is a leaf on a tree. At the bottom of that tree is that root and that root is the money printer. And so I think we could kind of blanket statement this to everybody by saying there's something in your life that you know isn't right. Maybe you can't quite put your finger on it, but whatever that problem is, it's caused by the money printer. And then Bitcoin fixes that. It fixes the money printer, which then in turn fixes everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. As we often say, fix the money, fix the world. And, yeah. you know, and the, the problem is, is getting a normie, quote unquote, to see how the nature of any given money, the qualities of any given money, be it gold, fiat, Bitcoin, silver, rocks, stones, seashells, whatever, how the different qualities of the money permeate and show up and influence everything downstream of it from the institutions to the culture, to the, the products and services and quality and everything, yeah. right? That's yeah. a very difficult story to tell. But tell it, the, the story of how money's change, evolve, and influence broader macro social change, even if we don't focus in on exactly what that is, but just the fact that that's a process that happens and recurs might be an easier story to tell. I'm not sure, yeah. but this is kind of what, you know, what led me to sure. think that you would be a good one to explain that stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so we focus on a problem and so we can look at some today, right? And I think uh, one that I've been talking about quite a bit, and I think maybe this is kind of where we'll dive into is just... Um, Everybody can see that uh, nobody could have imagined that we'd be in the state of the world today a year and a half ago. Right? Nobody, nobody could have guessed this. Like uh, a lot of people think this is like this black swan event. Nobody could have planned for this. Um, but I would say otherwise. I think we could see it coming. Many people have seen it coming. Many people have been re reading or writing about it, reading and writing about it for decades. Um, and this is just normal, actually. Um, and so kind of we talked about earlier before we started recording where uh, and actually humans are horrible at investing uh, because of our biases, our cognitive biases. And so uh, we suffer from like normalcy bias or recency bias. And so that means that um, everything will just go back to normal. Everything will just go back to the way it is. This is, you know, we're, we're going to get through this and everything goes back. Uh, but that's just not true. That's like a bias that we have. And we have to be aware of that. And so I would say that, yeah, we're not in this black swan event, um, but I think everybody can see that there's massive problems. Um, and at the same time, the leaders of the world are consolidating power and only doubling and tripling down on their measures that don't appear to be working. And at the same time, uh, uh, an equal and opposite reaction is happening, which is we're seeing people all over the world starting to push back. Um, you know, videos yesterday from Paris, I mean, gas all in the streets and people are erupting. And I mean, Brazil last week had millions and millions of people, the largest protests in history, uh, you name a country basically, and we're seeing it. And so uh, people can witness this happening in real time. I mean, the president of the supposedly free world went on last week and came out with the most dictator type policies that the that anyone could have ever imagined that the leader of free world would do. And at the same time, like, I think 34 states basically banded together and said, F you, <laughs> like what is going on? Right. The world is like, the world's going crazy. 
The question is, is that strange or is that normal? And what's going to happen on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, you mentioned people that have written about this. And I think we're all fans of the sovereign individual because and it, it speaks to the power of an accurate framework, because if you can overlay the framework on what's happening, then prediction is easier, right? And, and I would say that the, the framework that those guys developed and used, the proof is in the pudding, right? They, they write two decades in advance of what's happening now and speculate and predict exactly what's happening now, right? Yeah. The fracturing of the nation state, the dispersion of the tax base, the, the ability for people to you know, extricate themselves from certain jurisdictions and hide their wealth and do all these things. And that places extra burden on the nation state. The response from the nation state is to try to constrain and constrain ever more to, to reverse, to stop that trend, but it's an inevitable trend. So what you're going to get is the, the trend getting larger, but the, the efforts on behalf of the incumbent powers, the nation state structure getting more and more authoritarian. And that's why I said at the beginning, like, Yes, right now it's a, a virus and maybe in the you know, not too distant future, it'll be climate change or fill in the blank. See, what's not, it's not necessarily important what the issue is. The issue is invoked for the action that the nation state consciously or unconsciously wants to take in order to try to preserve itself, right? And so like even the people within the machine of the structure of the nation state and politics and stuff, very, very few of them, in my opinion, would be aware of what's happening, their role in it, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Everyone's just kind yeah. of playing to their incentives. But the punchline is that because this process is playing out as it is, some justification will be used and will be invoked in order to justify the action of constraining people more and more and more. And where that yeah. leads ultimately, especially as the source of that centralized power, the money begins to unravel is and, you know, if, if we accept that money is the primary coordinating mechanism for human economic and social interaction, when that breaks down, something else has to rise up to fill the vacuum. And that, again, yeah. is is authoritarian control by the centralized powers in order to try to keep things under control. And so what we have is like, you know, these two uh, these two inverse or opposite trends, which is one, more individual sovereignty, more individual freedom, more individual optionality, and the necessity for the, the former structure that we use, you know, as governance during the Industrial Revolution, let's say, to try to preserve itself. And that, yeah. that results in greater authoritarian uh, control, which is felt yeah. as tyranny and draconian policy to the people who are subject to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think uh, today more than ever, um, the governments, the leaders, the intellectuals, whatever you want to call it, they've, uh, they've really tried to cause confusion and uncertainty um, where today words have lost their meanings. Right. So like, uh, you know, uh, there's no such thing as man or woman anymore, right? I mean, there's no, I mean, whatever, right? We don't know what words mean anymore. Um, supposedly, right. capitalism is slavery now, I guess, instead of like a free market. So uh, I like to kind of try to abandon the socialism, communism, fascism, capitalism, kind of lose those words and really think about just there's two opposite ends of the spectrum, which is uh, collectivism and individualism. And I think it's easier if we kind of understand it like that. And if we go back through the beginning of time, it's always a battle between those two. And the battle rages on, and that's exactly what we're seeing today. Um, you mentioned uh, The Sovereign Individual, which is an amazing book, and I highly recommend everyone to read. As a matter of fact, I keep a copy nearby all the time because I reference it quite a bit. <laughs> um, 
Another book that I've been reading again, and I've been tweeting about, I tweeted about yesterday is the anatomy of the state by Rothbard. And, uh, it's a, this is a very difficult book to get through. <laughs> and I'm a reader. Uh, the anatomy of state is like a book, a booklet that you could like read in like a city. And I recommend everyone to read that, but it talks about what is the state who is the state, uh, what keeps the state, what's the goal of the state, right? How the state stays in power. Um, so I would, I, I, while I like this book and let's dig into that, um, I, I, it was written in 1997 and it's, it's, it was like prophetic to tell like what I think, I think it's instructional for what the future holds. Um, I really like um, 1984, uh, which was written in the forties, which basically predicted all this to happen. Um, and I think also the road to serfdom by Hayek is also another really good book to understand how we got here. Um, and then the sovereign individual is great to kind of tell us what the future holds if we use those two. But if you look at uh, 1984, which is like I said, written in the forties, or if you look at anatomy of the state by Rothbard, which is written, I think in the seventies, um, they both explain that in order for the state to maintain power, kind of to your point, right? Once they main, once they get the power, they want to maintain power. How? How do they maintain power? And so both of them spelled that out. I, I tweeted uh, Rothbard's or from the from the book on Anatomy of the State yesterday, and it says that in order for the state to maintain power, they use intellectuals, and they use intellectuals to push ideology um, that the state is good. The state is all knowing um, and they use experts and science. It literally says that. Um, so this wasn't, this wasn't anything new. They've been reading, writing about this for decades, 30, 40 years um, that they would use science and that uh, both in uh, 84, but also in anatomy of the state, they talk about how, you know, people are going to always, they're going to try to push people to um, sacrifice freedom for safety. And it depends on where that hierarchy is. And how um, if freedom becomes the number one driving principle, then everything else has to fall behind that, unfortunately. Uh, but no progress was ever made being free. Of course, uh, the free world, the new world would have never been found if people were trying to be safe. Um, mm. Space would have never been conquered if people were trying to be safe. Um, and so safe doesn't get us anywhere, uh, but, uh, but pretty interesting. But at the same time, if you read those books, as much as they predicted where we're at, I think they also help us to figure out where we're going. Where is that? Well, yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it is written in this book, right? But I think uh, what we can see is that, like, if we go back to the beginning of time, as I said earlier, we have this individualism and collectivism, and they basically uh, try to push against each other, and it, it flip-flops. So we see um, oppression, revolution, freedom, oppression, revolution, freedom, oppression, and, and then it just basically continues on forever. Um, and I think the reason why is because, man, humans... Um, I said on that podcast the other day that humans are the problem. Somebody took offense to that. And that's not what I mean. I mean, man or man or good. I, I believe that uh, to, a, to a fault, I believe uh, that everybody's good. And, and that's, that's uh, caused problems for me in the past. But I don't mean that humans are the problem. But I mean that uh, humans are always there's a group of people whether that's the homeowners association or the parent teacher association or local government or the president, there's a group of people that just want to control others. And they just want to tell people what to do. And so once they've been given a little bit of power, that power grows, right? And then they try to maintain that power, which is back to that anatomy of the state. And eventually they've gotten so much power that the people can't take it anymore and they revolt. And then there's revolution, there's freedom. Um, and so that cycle just kind of goes on and on and on. And what's interesting is, as, is that it's kind of like um, it's kind of like if we were bowling and we put bumpers up and the balls just 
binging off each side where it's like this, it's a, or there's a book actually titled the pendulum. And it talks about this, the pendulum just swinging back and forth from individualism to collectivism, individualism and collectivism. And so it gets so bad that people push back and then the pendulum swings and it gets so bad the other way that it pushes back and forth. And so just based off of that alone, we can dig into a bunch of other indicators, but just based off of that alone, I think it's pretty evident to see that we're like, at least almost at or at peak centralization, peak globalization, peak uh, collectivism. Uh, we hear it all over the place, right? We're all in this together. We are all in this together. Um, now the thing is we will all build back together. Um, and so it's this collectivist message that's pushing and we can see that the power continues to get consolidated. I tweeted this morning, um, <laughs> Biden put out some ridiculous new mandate that uh, 50% of cars on the road have to be EV by 2030. We're at 2% today. Mm. So we, we should all own unicorns that poop Skittles too, I guess. I don't see how either one are going to be realistic. But anyway, um, and oh, by the way, um, in order to incentivize that, if you buy an EV, well, they're trying to sneak through this $3.5 trillion bill. Um, the trillion dollar bill. If you, uh, if you buy an EV, you get a $12,500 credit. But only if you buy an EV from companies that have unionized labor. If you buy from Tesla or Toyota or Honda that are built in America, but they don't use unionized labor, you don't get the credit. Mm. So they're just pushing people to become the, the centralization that, that globalism has continued to get more and more and more centralized that power. We can see it all over. I could sit here and rack off examples all day. Um, so I think we're at peak globalization, but as we kind of started earlier, but we're seeing the world erupt. Millions of people all over the world are pushing back. And so we can see that we're at peak globalization. And so history tells us the pendulum swings back the other way to individualism. Yeah, I think that's a good way of framing it. And, and, you know, individualism, as a result of being in an environment like that, has become a dirty word. You know, for a lot of people, they, that's a criticism. People will say, you know, you, you, you're too individualistic. And people don't realize that that's all there is. Yes, as like there's emergent order from all of our, all of us taking individual decisions, like you get emergent outcomes, of course, but there is no collective action right? Like it, there's people acting and we've, we, as yeah. a result of being in this era, you know, and I'm, I'm from Canada and it's the same everywhere really, but in Canada, it's particularly pronounced that whenever there's a problem of any kind, you know, like some issue in society, some need is not being met. I think most of us would say the most effective way for that need to be met is for that demand to be signaled to the market and for someone in the market to capitalize on that demand and provide the best possible solution. But in the world today, it's the government apparatus is supposed to be the one to fix all problems. If there's an issue, you go to them. And I can't blame those people entirely because they have the magic money printer, which over time centralizes power because that permits them the ability to take action whenever they need to via the siphoning off of resources from the productive market, of course, but like the punchline is, is you would expect any entity with that level of extreme power to ultimately become a type of godlike figure in, in the society because they basically have unlimited ability to do things. And so, of course, people, now people don't realize the danger 
and the destruction of always going to that governing apparatus to, to fix every little problem. People, unfortunately, aren't that sophisticated or educated in these matters, but it's certainly not a surprise that they would do that. And, you know, so as you were saying, it, it that, is kind of a surprise, though, because I think if you if you actually had, you know, any critical thinking and you actually did a little bit of uh, historical research, uh, I don't know if you could point to many things that the government has actually fixed. Um, everything that has been created has been created by individuals. Uh, you know, in the early days of the United States, all the roads and railroads, that was all built by private businesses, private individuals. Uh, the healthcare system, all the innovation has all come from private individuals. The government goes, goes and co-ops it, and they typically make it worse. Um, so I don't know if I could point to a lot of things that the government has actually made better. Well, of course, I agree with you, but the, the problem is <laughs> so, in, in today's world, there, there is such an oversimplification of thinking. And that fact alone is reason enough not to trust any of the narratives that are attempting to be imposed on you. Like, forget all the motivations, all the incentives, all the competing interests. The fact that we live in a world today where the, the thinking is so overly simplistic and narrow means I do not trust anyone creating a narrative for me. I will take in the information. I will put it through my filter. I will make the best decision for me. And that, that statement in itself is like almost radical today, right? Because look, yeah. look at where we're at. Like we, we, we encounter a, a global problem, right? In the Rona, however much of a problem that really is, maybe we'll never, that, that really is, maybe we'll never know. But it's like, there wasn't even discussion about solution. It's like narrow definition, and probably over amplification of a problem, narrowly defined solution, cookie cutter approach for everybody, you know, and, and that is one manifestation of that overly simplistic thinking, but it applies to so many different areas of our lives, which is why I think most of us would characterize a lot of society as being, you know, kind of asleep in some capacity, you know, not having the resources to think about things in a more holistic or detailed yeah. or, or, you know, truthful way. Well, I think you can see it. And I, I, you know, not to dig into politics. And again, I don't like using labels, but if we were looking at, you know, individualism, collectivism, we can see this thinking, and I don't know if you want to call it the left and the right as well, but like, um, <clears throat> you obviously are very into your health, as am I. <laughs> um, I believe that I'm responsible for my health. I work hard at my health, um, but you might see other people on the other side that, um, you know, I believe that I should, I believe that all, per, all change starts with me. I need to become more educated. I need to build, make my body stronger. I need to build my income and my savings higher. I need to do more philanthropy and go out and do more good in the world. I need to go do those things. Whereas we see people on the other side say, John, you need to. John, you need to pay reparations to other people. John, you need to give your money to the government so they can do good. John, you need to like give up your health, right? Right. So like you see the other side is like, it's for you. You need to do all these things. Whereas I think on the other side, the individual side is like, I need to do these things. I create the change in the world by making me better, making my family better, making my friends better, et cetera. So it's just a different approach. Um, but to your point, I mean, there is no, there is no, there is no collective state. It's only it's only made up of individuals. And so, uh, you know, we've been we've been and it's I guess I hate to say it's not people's fault, but I guess everyone's been so brainwashed where, John, it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you can't lose weight. 
It's not your fault that you can't get money. It's not that your fault that you don't have a good job. It's not your fault, but it, it is. It is your fault. You know, Jordan Peterson likes to say like, hey, it's like a game of poker. Like you get the hand that you were dealt, but you just play it the best that you can. You know, the past is the past, but the future is up to you. And I think more people need to hear that message. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The, the only caveat I would say is that I think the proper perspective to have is that everything is your fault. You're responsible for everything, right? And, and there are some great literary works and people throughout the ages that have suffered massively under, you know, insane conditions, right? Like v Victor Frankl, who still says, like, no matter what your, your condition, like, your freedom is your ability to choose in any given moment, right? Like, who you are, how you feel, how you, how you will act. And I agree with yeah. all that. But it is also the case that most people alive in the world today have been subject to a system that makes it unnecessarily unfair for them, right? So like, yeah. I have sympathy. And again, that's why I try to talk about Bitcoin and spread the word about Bitcoin, because yeah. I think that's the thing that evens the playing field. So that still everyone's going to start on, you know, different levels. You're going to be six, five and jacked. You're going to be four foot and, you know, pudgy yeah. and all that kind of stuff. Like everyone's going to be different, but at least we're all on the same playing field. Right. Yeah. And then, then we can let our skills and our work ethic and our insight and our talent and all that kind of stuff emerge and help guide us in whatever direction we want to go. Um, but we've been placed under this system of planned deprivation effectively and planned unfairness because that deprivation is caused by a small, by a lot of the wealth siphoning up to what is effectively a small group of people. And you don't have to invoke any sort of conspiracy for this. However, the system came to be, whether there was intent, whether they knew what would result, whatever. The fact of the matter is, is that what, that's what the system does, you know? And so you mentioned a few minutes ago that we have these, these competing factors. Like there's this faction of people that are uber collectivist minded. And then there's these people that are, you know, basically protesting a lot of these collectivist policies and these impositions. Now, maybe not all of them are, are quite cl as clearly delineated as that, but what do you think it is that's causing, you know, you, and you said we, we may be at the kind of the apex of this, where the pendulum is, has swung to the collectivist side, and maybe it'll begin now swinging back to the individual side yeah. as a result of uh, technologies yeah. like Bitcoin and information technology and, you know, the whole sovereign yep. individual thesis. What do you think is causing that, let's say, awakening in people so that they're pushing back against the collectivist policies? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we're looking at, um, you know, finance, economics, macro, things like that, um, you're looking for like indicators. So indicators would be like little telltale signs. If, if, uh, if I was driving down the road, you give me directions like, hey, turn right at the, at the mailbox and turn left at the end of the fence, right? Like those are indicators that we see that know, help us know where we're going. Um, when you look at indicators, you never want to look at just one indicator. Um, you need multiple indicators. Um, and I think there's three that we need to be looking at, and I'm calling these three revolutionary cycles. And what's interesting is there's three different revolutionary cycles from three different areas that run on three different timeframes, but they all seem to be converging right now at the exact same time. And so uh, the first one is that we can see just as we're talking about, right, that the world is like cracking apart. Um, this is like what I call a political, social, or cultural cycle. This is like us, the people, uh, the state versus the people, kind of how we interact, the political, social, cultural. 
Um, and that works on, on different time frames. Then we have the um, technology, Techno technological revolutions. I'm not talking about technologies like a new iPhone or the internet. I'm talking about a technological revolution that changes the face of humanity that happens on a 50-year time frame. Uh, and then we have financial revolutions. Um, and they, those happen on 80-year time frames. When we, and so there's three different revolutions, financial, technological, and politically. Um, and they work on different time frames. And we can talk through each one. But the fact is, they're all converging right now, which is why it's like amplifying the message. It's amplifying the effects. And it's amplifying what people are seeing and feeling in real time. Uh, most people just don't know how to put their finger on it. They, they can all feel it. They can all see it. They know it, but they're not sure what it is. And, and it's because it's, it's everywhere. It's everything all happening at once. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, it, it makes total sense. And you said we can, we can dig into each one and I yeah. think we should, you know, because it would yeah. be good to get some details on them. So we've already been talking about the political, social, cultural side. And so cult socially, you know, culturally, individualism, collectivism, politically, you know, governments, people. All, so that's kind of what that's entailing. Um, and basically, as I kind of already laid out, like history goes from this, you know, pendulum swinging of oppression to freedom. Um, and really, there's, uh, there's a bunch of different cycles, but there's two that I like to pick up on. And so there's one that runs in like 80, every 84 years. Um, and uh, it's a 84 year, it's a political uh, populist uprising or regime change. So about every 84 years, you see this populist uprising, which is what we see today, populism uprising uh, and regime change uh, systems change. So 84 years ago was uh, Hitler, Mussolini, and in the United States was the uh, FDR's New Deal, which effectively turned the United States from kind of a capitalist society to a socialist society. Um, so those were, that was regime change. 84 years before that, was Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, which led to the European Spring, which is the largest revolution that Europe has ever seen. So those are every 84 years we see those. And what's interesting is 84 times three equals 252. So about every 250 years, we see a revolution cycle. And so that's what we're talking about, this revolution. And so 250 years ago was the American Revolution, the French Revolution. And 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation. And so each one of those, so every 250 years, we see this. And what each one signifies, really, if you dig in and look at it, um, is that they're rejecting centralization to move to decentralization. So obvious, it's obvious in the American Revolution, they were rejecting the centralization of the monarchy. They didn't want to be controlled by one, you know, by a king, by a crown, especially in, uh, in another country. Um, and then 250 years before, and then, and then they pushed back against that, the centralization. And what did they create? They created a republic, which was a decentralized government. So each state being independent, working together, individuals working together collectively for the benefit of the state. So they, they created this kind of first independent or decentralized government. So they pushed away from centralization, created decentralization. The 250 years before that, the Protestant Reformation was a similar thing. So at the time, and, and this goes back to what we were talking about before, man, but um, trying to create these uh, intellectuals at the time, uh, you know, kings used to be considered God or deity, um, and then uh, kings worked with churches to create that that position of power. And so, at the time, basically, the king and the church worked together. And the only way to get to God was through the church. Uh, people didn't have access to the Bibles; they couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And so, centrally, if I wanted salvation, there was one central path that I had to go down. 
70 years earlier, the printing press had been created. And so everyone had gotten Bibles and they started reading for themselves and they realized, I don't need this central path. We can go decentralized. We can all have our own path. We can all go individually to God. Um, and it broke that grip of centralization and created decentralization. And so um, that shows us that every 250 years, peak globalization, peak centralization, uh, rejects for decentralization. And so, you know, now today we're at that peak, right? We're seeing this peak centralization, peak globalization. We're also seeing that the world is rejecting it at the same time. And so history tells us that it rejects globalism and we move to a decentralized system. Why do you think those <clears throat> numbers of years are what's at play in these respective cycles? So I think there's there's a there's a couple other books that I've read that uh, so obviously people are probably familiar with generational theory, which is also was was what was talked about in the fourth turning, um, and they talk about uh, four four twenty year periods, four different generations, um, and you've at this point, everybody's heard the saying of, you know, hard times bring great men and great men bring great times, great times bring weak men, weak men bring um, bad times. And then it repeats. Um, the reason why that's important is because like I said, like if we're bowling and we have bumpers up, it just moves from one to the other. And so it's easy to see how that framework could work. Um, hard times create strong men. People have to, I mean, when times are tough and you can't live and you can't feed your family or wars happening, like someone's going to have to rise up. And then those people make great times. Um, and we can see this just in the United States for pretty evident. My dad, uh, grew up on a farm in Iowa. My grandfather was an immigrant to the country from Holland, and he worked his ass off building the farm, and he made my dad work his ass off on a farm. When my dad grew up, he would literally be loaned out to the neighbors to help them with their harvest. That's how they did it back then. Um, my dad then went on college educated, went into the military, uh, became an entrepreneur, um, and I work hard, but I had way better times that my dad created for me. I work hard, but not anywhere near as hard. And now I've reached a level of affluence and my kids don't have any of that, right? And so you can see just in those generations from my grandfather, my father, me, and now my kids, um, and I've created great times. And unfortunately, those great times, they just create weak men. So there's kind of that generational theory. Um, and then uh, and then there's another book I mentioned earlier called The Pendulum, and it documents these 80-year cycles. Again, another 80-year cycle, 80, 84. It's kind of like there's four seasons in the you know summer, spring, winter, fall. On the calendar, it has an exact date that it happens. That doesn't mean that the weather changes right there. It's kind of plus or minus, so 80, 84 years. But the pendulum basically documents thousands of years of this pendulum swinging back and forth. And again, why does it happen to your question? People are so oppressed that they just reject and they, and they go back the other way. If you look at any financial chart, like a, a stock chart, you'll see there's a mean and the price, even like Bitcoin, continues to go up and down over that. But it's always trying to revert back to that mean. Um, but it, the further it gets stretched to one side, it typically goes uh, further to the other side. So that's why I'd say it's, uh, it's generational theory. It's, it's reactionary. Um, I guess is probably the best answer. It's reactionary. Yeah, you know, I've been reading um, a book by Eric Neumann, The Origins and History of Consciousness. He, he's deceased now, I believe, but he's, uh, he was a student of Jung's. I think the book was uh, written in the 60s. And it, it talks a lot about, you know, 
consciousness, right? And the archetypes that animate consciousness and the development and evolution of consciousness over time. And, you know, and it, it seems when we talk about these cycles, like, you know, the hard times instill humility in people, right? And, you know, because things are super hard and you, you don't get to think about uh, so much like self, all the different self-serving options that are available to you, right? You're, the, what you're trying to figure out is self-preservation and preservation of, of yeah. your loved ones. And that's, that's a very, I think, humbling perspective to be put in. And then if you fast forward to the good times that create the weak men, the, the weak men or weak people, you know, these are times where humility isn't necessary. Options are available. Abundance is everywhere. And it, I would assume that those two states, those two circumstances manifest very different aspects of our consciousness, right? Humility kind of grounds you in, in like kind of a conservative mind in what's real, you know, uh, being careful with things, respecting how fragile life and systems and all of that kind of stuff is, right? Whereas, and, and that obviously has an impact on, on your consciousness and your perception of yourself and your ambition and, and your emotional stability. And then yeah. contrast that with the opposite, you know, those times of exuberance and footloose and fancy free, you don't have to worry about stuff as much and you don't have to be as conservative. Well, that obviously affects your consciousness differently and draws out different elements and archetypes within you, you know? Yep. And so perhaps it's for that reason that whatever time scale and whatever cycle we're looking at, you know, it, it's the nature of our consciousness is what causes these cycles to continue to recur over time because our consciousness generates one circumstance and environment and also reacts to it, right? So it, we, we generate it, but then we're influenced by it. And when we find ourselves in one that's influencing us in a very different way, let's say, then we, we act differently. And I wonder if it's possible to even escape that. You know, I, I know we'll probably discuss how Bitcoin changes the game and the cycles a little bit, but yeah. I wonder if it's, it's forever just kind of... Uh, our circumstance of, of the consciousness that, that we have. Well, I think, I mean, it, it's, it is that consciousness, but it's the environment that maybe creates the consciousness. So right. um, there's eight stages of like an empire. And so it starts with uh, the outburst. So the outburst is the revolution. The outburst is the new creation. That's the spring, right? The winter killed off the bad. Now we have the spring, the outburst. Um, and then it goes into the conquest. That's when things start uh, stabilizing, things start getting set up. Then you go into the commerce. So now people are setting up their businesses. Everyone's freely trading. Everything's going good. Uh, the fourth stage then goes to affluence which is that good times now. So now things are going great. Everybody's benefited from the free markets. Everybody's feeling great. Uh, everyone's making a lot of money. People are feeling good. Then we move into the next stage, which is the age of intellect. So you see, it's the, it's the stage uh, that created the, in, uh, the environment that created that consciousness. So the environment of affluence Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it took away the, uh, the need for us to like worry about what we're going to eat every day. We have massive influence. And so then what happens next? Well, we move to intellect, right? Now people can go just talk about philosophy and people can study because they don't have those needs anymore. There's so much influence. The next stage after intellect, the seventh stage, uh, sixth stage is decadence. 
after intellect becomes decadence. So again, the um, that state, the environment causes that consciousness, maybe where we go to decadence. Um, and so now people are buying $500 million yachts, and they're buying $68 million JPEGs, and they're spending $8,000, $18,000 to buy invisible art. Um, and uh, that's decadence, right? Uh, you see people on TikTok or whatever talking about their watch and their shoes and their car and all those things, obviously the rappers and whatnot. Um, the seventh stage after decadence goes to the decline. That's when things start falling apart, right? And if you think about back to the hierarchy of needs, right? Like now, uh, and this is this is so evident in the United States, if you travel, and I, as I know you do, we hung out in El Salvador together. I traveled through Mexico and Central America quite a bit. Um, you don't see it there because there's, those people are struggling so hard. But in the United States or in Canada, where you're from, um, because of the affluence, intellect, decadence, it goes to decline, which is that, all of our needs are taken care of. So now I'm going to make a big fit over a pronoun you may or may not call me. Mm. You think anybody in El Salvador or Mexico cares about a freaking pronoun? Like, mm. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And so like, we're creating all these problems out of nothing, out of yeah. nothing. That's the decline. Um, it also, it's not in this chart, but it also leads to the seventh stage is also considered um, um uh, oh, dependence. So the decline leads to dependence, which is, of course, UBI, right? Uh, STEMI, things like that. And then the last, the final stage, the, the dependence turns into bondage. And that's the eighth stage, the collapse. And so I, I don't know, I guess, and you can back to how you left it to me, that, uh, that consciousness. So, I mean, doesn't it seem like it's kind of that environment that maybe leads to that? And then it's easy to see because it's reactionary, how that one environment now needs to have the next environment. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, obviously, it's a constant feed, feedback loop between the two, right? Like, it's not just that one causes the other exclusively, it's, it's feeding back between the two. But, you know, it, it's, I think that what character, one of the maybe psychological uh, components that characterize the decadence phase is that people forget or don't realize or aren't informed of what actually led to the good times. Yeah. Right? So like, like whether it be principles, whether it be laws, whether it be philosophies, like all the different things that, you know, to maybe use a stereotype, but like your grandfather, the things that he held in his mind that helped him build the farm, provide for the family, you know, go through the tough times to build all that. In the decadence phase, it's almost like people assume all that happens by default, all that happens exactly. automatically. And that there's, there's no respect or recognition for the very things that provide the decadence. And that's why it goes away. It's 100%. 100% right. So I like to say um, that we have like natural laws, right? So of course, of course, you agree. Um, but like gravity, for example, right? That's a natural law. Now, with enough money, and enough technology, I could defy gravity temporarily, but I'm always going to be beholden to that law. Um, another law is the law of sowing and reaping. I must sow before I reap, right? I must produce before I consume. The problem is, if we just go back to the four stages of generational theory, um, the, the, the hard times, brought, uh, the great men brought, brought great times. They built up this storehold of wealth, to your point, the grandfather, right? Um, and then um, we have the sec now today, we have a second generation of people who have never worked, they've never produced, they've never sowed. 
But to what you just said, they think they don't, they don't tie the sowing to the reaping, which is a natural law. It's gravity. They were able to just be flying. They didn't realize that there was gravity. And so they don't realize that you have to produce before you consume. The problem is those people are the ones in academia and politics. Mm -hmm. So those people that live in this fairy tale world that don't understand how that you must actually sow before you reap um, are the ones making the policies today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it kind of makes sense that they would gravitate towards those industries that have that uh, characteristic where that you can reap before you sow, right? That's yeah. what, you know, politics and, and fiat academia is. It's, it's the magic money printer bestowing value on these institutions and on these jobs where the market would not have done so, right? So it's like this unnatural uh, valuing of certain deeds and the people that don't ascribe to the, the, the so before you reap mentality, of course, they gravitate towards that more, you know, yeah. and, it, and it, one of the, go ahead. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, uh, go ahead if you want. Well, I, I was just going to say one of the things that, that uh, you know, frustrates me so much about politics everywhere, but again, you know, I'm, I'm from Canada and so I pay more close attention to what's going on there is you get all these politicians, you know, virtue signaling about you know, pick an issue. Uh, and there's so little humility, there's so little recognition of, again, like what actually, and I'm no, I'm no proponent. I, like I, I have been critical of modern, you know, society for a while, right? Like even before 18 months ago, I mean, I was critical about how politics worked, how the money system worked, all this kind of stuff. But even as critical as I was, like you have to also appreciate the, the things that allowed us to get to our place where yeah. we're at, as imperfect as it is. And you just get this, this sense from all these people that none of the things, like a, a complete lack of recognition of what manifested that circumstance. Yeah. So for, for example, like freedom of speech, right? This is a, a sacrosanct principle of culture so that we can contend with the best information and the most opinions and, and, and sift through them all and have them out in discourse so that we have a chance at coming to the, the you know, a, a collective truth. conclusion when that, or, or a collective or a truth when it's necessary to do so. And we have in today's society, not only the lack of recognition, but the active destruction of all those principles that actually were the fundamental characteristics that allowed a, a relatively compared to history free society to flourish and so you have all these people that claim you know virtuous inclusion for the greater good all this kind of stuff who are the ones that are actually tearing down the very things that provide the level of, of freedom that we have in in free societies today and this is part of the reason you know to bring it way back to the point of this discussion in in my you know, warnings to loved ones. It's like, this is why I'm so concerned because it, it doesn't all just happen because, you know, like we're, we're, as you say, because we're in this decadent time in the modern world, or at least many of us, and I, and I don't want to discount the big and growing portion of the population that are actually suffering tremendously, right? Like that, they often get ignored when we say, when people say like, oh, aren't times so great right now? It's like, well, you know, the, they're good and could be better for many of us. They're really well, they're not. They're not in the empire. A lot of people, you yeah. know, like like all those people in in, on, in San Francisco and all the homeless people throughout everywhere and all the people on food stamps. Like 
they ain't sitting around saying like, oh, aren't things so great? You know, so we, we have to remember those people when we have these uh, conversations, but like it, it people, when, when we do away with the things that got us to, to where we were to the point where we can almost ignore those very things, or at least we're not immediately punished for doing so. That's what, what gives me the greatest concern, right? And that's what yeah. kind of makes me so convicted about how I, or so confident about how this is going to unravel. Yeah. We, if we do away with, you know, the money, or let's say the money has been degrading for the last 50 years and it's reaching its kind of death throes sort of moment. And we do away with the kind of ideas or principles that help to erect what, you know, the freest societies that we've ever had. Even those two things alone, we're headed to a very bad place yeah. if we don't adjust or react or do something about that. Hence my, you know, my concern and, and yeah. how I try to communicate with family members. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I know this video is, is meant to go try to kind of encourage or, or persuade those people who don't really get it. Um, I guess the piece that I would leave this section with would be that um, when you understand that just like natural law of sowing and reaping, um, the systems that we have today won't work. They don't work. We must sow before we reap. That's just the only way. Um, it's a natural law. And so uh, we've been able to suspend that temporarily with enough money and technology like gravity. Um, but we're always going to be beholden to that law. And so um, for me, um, uh, because I'm not super happy with the way things are, well, I hate to say that. Look, if we could just if we could just freeze in time right now, maybe where we were last year, if we go back like a year and just freeze it, like maybe I could just be okay with that. Um, the problem is I understand where this is heading, right? Um, but um, it's crumbling. It won't work. It, it's falling apart. Uh, it won't work because it ignores that natural law. The irony and kind of what you were saying is um, supposedly right now everything's trust the science, trust the scientists. Well, science would observe, right? So science, first of all, people get this misunderstood. Science is not a fact. Science is not a fact. Science is an observation and an opinion about the observation. That's what science is. And the, uh, the, the opinions are made by man, and that's different people could have different opinions of the same observation, and it's constantly evolving. So first of all, anyone that thinks it's fact is, is wrong. But anyway, um, what, to my point, it would be observing the situation. What led up to this event? That's science. We're supposed to trust the science. But to your point, we've completely ignored all the things that have been good that have led to this event. So typically you'd go, well, uh, this was a bad outcome. Like 200 million people died of communism. That's bad. <laughs> what led to that? <laughs> okay. It was these steps. Uh, the greatest uh, civilization on earth that brought more people out of, uh, out of poverty. What led to that? And you would typically think they would look through that, this trust the science, but of course they, they've ignored that. Yeah. Well, uh, spot on, right. It's complete bullshit, you know, and, and you get people today, you know, putting various photos on social media and hashtags and all this stuff, science, trust science and stuff. It's like, they're, they're, they're out of their fucking minds. They're not, trust, they're, they're, they're trusting government and pharmaceutical companies. They ain't fucking trusting science, right? Yeah. You, you can't claim to be trusting science when you're marginalizing or censoring half the information that's attempting to come out, right? As you say, science is about observation. Let's take in all the data we can. Let's sift through it. Let's, let's analyze it. Let's discuss it. Let's debate it. Let's determine the validity of it. And then let's 
discuss <laughs> options and solutions. That people say not, people say the science is settled. Today. Have you heard that yeah. the science is settled? It's like no, it's never the science settled. is a process. Yeah, exactly. You know, so but again, that that's just another example of of how insane things have become, right? Yeah. And all yeah. the all this virtue signaling and all this misuse of terms, you know, go back to Orwell and stuff like how things are words are being redefined and meaning is being adjusted and you know, it's 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 madness, really. But yeah. You know, back to the point about uh, centralization and decentralization, uh, the collective and the individual. Is this, in your opinion, do you think this is just how human beings and the societies that flourish around them uh, evolve? So let me I'll put a bit more detail on that question. That book I referenced earlier, his basic thesis is that the evolution of consciousness is actually seems to have, be moving toward greater individuation, right? So like greater identification with the individual ego. Now that's not to say egotistical behavior. It's just that the, the individual person is more and more identified with the self than with the collective. <clears throat> Very simple analogy would be, let's say, millions of years ago, we ran around as packs of apes, right? And, you know, there was very little differentiation between the behavior of the individual members of that group. Whereas as consciousness evolved and as people have, let's say, more unique individuated thoughts, of course, they become more individuated, unique people. And that kind of process plays out and it's still playing out, right? It's not finished. But power and wealth and competence and those sorts of things to my mind, seem to always centralize, right? If I'm stronger, faster, more talented, wealthier than you, then I have the ability to garner more resources, compete better against you effectively, and therefore yep. power uh, and wealth and, and all those things concentrate. <clears throat> but there comes a point in time where that concentration ends up being detrimental to the system which fostered it, let's say, and all the different players in that system. And so it's almost like the, the, the competition and the concentration is what pushes things forward for a time, but then there's a realization or a, a fragility or a destabilization that results from the, dis, you know, the disparity, let's say, between the different the actors the being, well, yeah, but yeah, sure, so being too great that it has to dissolve back into something uh, more distributed before it can again push forward and to become more individuated and then back in, you know, and, and the, I guess the archetypal or um, symbolic representation of this would be like the ego dissolving into the, the Ouroboros, right? Which is let, let's just say pure potential and then coming back into individuated form with more information from that state so that they can kind of keep evolving on that process. So, and, and this may be a weird, uh, analogy but if you've ever watched like these nature documentaries where the time lapse of forest growing or it might be a fungus on a tree or it might just be a tree itself like it's never just like whoop, like straight up or, or straight growth right it's always like a pulsating growth right there's a push toward growth and then there's a well, it's, it's summer spring winter fall right right exactly there's a there's a contraction there's a consolidation but, but not back to the level it, which it started, like ahead of that to some degree. 
and then it pushes forward again, and then it contracts and it pushes forward again. So is this cycle or these cycles that you've been articulating, which seem to almost all be related to individual versus collective, is this inevitable? Is this how we move forward? Like we, well, we go towards collective or like, or sorry, individual concentration, and then we dissolve back into the collective for a time. And then we go back, you know, more into individual, like, is that, yeah. is that why? So I think uh, we'll, we can move into the next uh, technological revolution that's converging and that helps answer more questions. But before we do, I just say, I'll just say this. So, um, and, and you understand philosophy better than I do, uh, but we'll talk about this. To, so I'll talk to, to tell this to the audience and not to you, but um, without joy or without pain, there's no joy, right? There's no such thing as like steady growth. You have to have cycles. You have to have, to your, to your point, nature has to grow and then it has to pull back. We have to have recessions. We have to have revolutions. Uh, my muscle grows by tearing it down, right? We grow under stress. It's the only way. So uh, that's another reason why these academia and intellectuals have it wrong today. They think everything can just be okay and just grow forever and there can be no recessions and nobody can be unhappy. And that's just not true. We have to be unhappy sometimes. We just otherwise we won't know what joy is, right? And so creative destruction is an I mean creative that, destruction. Right? Yeah. So um to kind of your earlier point, which is uh some people are smarter and they'll collect more wealth, and then eventually that could be the detriment to the rest of the people. Um, I would say, you know, that's one way of thinking. Uh obviously that's what the social that's what that's what communists think. Uh, that's what that's what they they think that uh, capitalism can only go so far and then capitalism caps out because of the monopolies that form, then you need to go through socialism, which socialism then tears it down. And then only then can communism emerge like this uh, butterfly coming from a cocoon. Um, I don't believe that. And, and the reason why I don't believe that is because um, things progress. Progression is not linear. Progression is exponential. So things change very quickly. Um, under a true free market system, things evolve and change so fast that the, the guy who was smart before and collected all the wealth won't be smart the next time. Somebody else will be. Mm -hmm. Only through using government regulations and coercion are they able to stem the tide of, of creative destruction enough where they can maintain their monopoly. But under a free system, uh, it, it, it constantly changes. Um, and then when we move into this next cycle, which is the technological revolutions, that's what changes it. So um, I said earlier, like uh, things are reactionary, right? So um, it makes sense that solutions come to problems. <laughs> I see a problem. I create a solution. Now today with the money printer, we have a bunch of money that's chasing, you know, trying to go solve things that don't need to be solved. But typically back to this individualism thing, individuals would have a problem and they'd come up with a solution. Um, and so solutions come to problems. Um, and what happens is the political, social, cultural problems that we have find technological solutions. That's technological revolution. And then technological revolutions drive financial cycles. So that's how all three work together. Like, uh, you know, the, the, the last technological revolution we had in 1971 was the age of the microprocessor. Actually, let me just walk you back through them. So uh, there's been five in the last 250 years. They happened on a 50-year cycle. So um, I was going to reference Marx earlier. Uh, Marx was mad because he was born in a time of the Industrial Revolution, he was born to a fam to a wealthy, affluent family that were lawyers, attorneys. He didn't want to become an attorney. 
he wanted to be a philosopher. And he was mad at the world that he couldn't survive just writing poetry and philosophy. That's what he wanted to do. And he was mad. And, and it was uh, so he all his writing about, you know, the Communist Manifesto was mad at the capitalists because he didn't want to conform to that world. He wanted to write philosophy. But it was also during the time of the Industrial Revolution. So that was the first technological revolution that we had. It changed humanity. All of humanity, people farmed and there was like a cottage industry but that brought people into factories and cities changed humanity forever 50 about approximately 50 years later we had uh, steam engines and steel so all of humanity we had manpower and horsepower now we had steam engines changed everything and we had steel i mean steel's changed everything we can go from two building two story brick buildings to skyscrapers and bridges um the next one we had uh, electricity changed humanity right like it what at the time and this is interesting we'll get back to this but at the time it was a way to have like an electric light bulb i don't need that i got a candle right i don't need an electric light bulb i have candle yeah but look look what we're doing today because electricity right um then fast forward uh 1908 we had the age of oil and the automobile and uh and um um mass production so all of humanity people walked or rode horses forever that's it and now we had cars trucks we could transport things um and then 1971 the microprocessor which led to personal computers which led to mobile phones which led to the internet and the information age 1971 plus 50 years is 2021 right now and there's another technological revolution that's starting right now that will change humanity technological revolutions um aren't new technologies new technologies like the iphone or like airbnb they extend an economy those micro improvements continue to make that economy new the technological revolution is the creative destruction you referenced earlier which completely gets rid of the old way creates a new way that's so powerful that creates entire new markets off of it um, you could obviously see that the automobile <laughs> created all types of markets, not just um, automobile manufacturers, but, uh, you know, service stations and roads and construction companies and uh, service providers and parts suppliers. And I mean, right. Uh, also the same with the micro, you know, the computer and the internet that created entire economies. And now we have another technology. What's interesting about this technological revolution, which you already know what it is, uh, but I won't spoil it for the listeners yet <laughs> is, uh, is this new technology again, solutions come to problems, right? So when we look at the political, social, cultural problems that we have, well, we already, already highlighted that it starts with the money printer. So we have a problem where one group of people are, to, are able to create as much money for themselves as they want and give it to all their friends and, and, and cronies. That's a big problem. It creates a ripple through every problem in society. That's a problem. Uh, another problem is censorship. Not just censorship and the fact that uh, you and I are dancing around our words right now because this might get banned, which I know I've heard you censor yourself and I have too. Um, not just that, but even in the ability to hold our wealth. So um, the government can create more money and steal our wealth through inflation. That's a problem. Uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, we saw PayPal and the Anti-Defamation League partnered up. Uh, Anti-Defamation League will now... Uh, tell PayPal everybody that they think is saying bad things online, mean things, um, and PayPal will censor their financial um, transactions and they will share them with all the other financial companies. 
So not only do they, um, they censor my money by stealing it away through inflation, they also censor what I can do with it. I couldn't send it to you if they didn't like you. Um, I couldn't receive money if they didn't like me, et cetera. So that's a problem. Um, another big, another big, 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 big problem. And this is more evident today than we've ever seen before. You mentioned your families in the restaurant business. We used to be ruled by law. The constitution was a rule of law that was meant to be easy to understand. So everybody could understand what that law is. And then we could all set our life based off that law. I could plan my life based off the law. You could plan your life based off that law. Um, uh, Hayek talks about this on the road to serfdom. He's got a whole chapter devoted to this. Um, it's a must read, but basically we should be able to plan our lives based off that. But today we're ruled by men who arbitrarily change the laws like your family. You can't eat inside your restaurant anymore. So they spend all this money and all this time to set up outside up. Uh, now you can't eat outside anymore. But if you go inside and put plexiglass up, you can do 30%. So I reconfigure the whole restaurant. I spend all this money on plexiglass. Oh, now you can go to 50%. It's like, I, I can't work like that. I can't have this. So, what, so, so this rule by men is a problem. So what do we need? We need immutable law that can't be changed, right? So when you start looking at those things, those are the problems that we have. The solution needs to solve those. So we need a decentralized solution that nobody can control that has immutable law, not governance, not governance like some other projects have, but immutable law. We need a fixed supply instead of this unlimited money printer. And so um, the technological revolution that we have today is just that, decentralized technology um, that's censorship resistant, that can't be seized, stolen, can't be manipulated, um, and it has immutable law, not not governance on it. And so um, we have that today. And obviously that's cryptocurrencies, right? We're talking about that generally. Of course, there's, I don't know, today I've lost track 8,000, 9,000, 12,000 cryptocurrencies. But when you understand that problems come to solutions, I'm sorry, solutions come to problems. If you understand what the problems are, which I've just laid out, and then you look at the eight to 12,000 cryptocurrencies that are out there and go, well, which ones of those solve those problems? Because those are the big problems which one saw, but then you just figure that there's, there's only one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And it's such an interesting point. It bears repeating the benefit of immutable law, right? The, the benefit of knowing the rules of the game, the benefit of knowing the terrain that in which you're acting, you know, as you, a perfect example is like we were saying with, with the laws of society and, and the principles and the ideas that help to erect a society it is those things that people can rely on as being okay if i abide by these rules right and if and if i will be held to uh you know these rules then i know the parameters in which i can act i can plan for acting within those parameters i can expect and predict other people to act within those parameters planning is easier execution is easier everything right and you know been reading a lot about religion lately and i mean I, I think you some people characterize religion as the attempt to discern or discover what the immutable laws of human experience or the or the reality let's say that humans experience you right so not necessarily the world of matter and measurement but what what are the immutable laws of human experience and i think part of the religious endeavor is to tease those out 
to inform, again, how we act in the world, right? So whether it's in the religious domain, whether it's in the law and order domain, whether it's in the economic domain, immutable law is so valuable because it, it constitutes the parameters which you then uh, plan and execute your action around, right? And, and again, if they're always shifting and changing, then your planning and execution is way, way, way harder, requires way more resources, is way more depletive to you. But if you can have faith in them, then it's way easier to chart a course and to stay on it. And so, you know, I, I totally agree with your characterization. I, I'm wondering, though, what do you think are, are the, will be the effects of bringing an immutable law effectively to the, you know, the realm of money, the, the human economic realm? And, and obviously, we have to recognize that money and economics are not just like nice little areas of human study, but they're fundamental to human life, human interaction, and even consciousness, because we get our cues from culture. We get our cues from price signals. We orient our own value hierarchies around the, the signals that we get from our environment. And all of those things are affected by prices, money, economics, exchange, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. you know, this field is far more than just an academic study of, of, of numbers in a, you know, a textbook. Like some people might say, well, economics and money don't interest me. Well, you may not be interested in economics and money, but economics and money is in, interested in you, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like, uh, uh, Ayn Rand said that uh, you can you can choose to ignore reality, but you can't ignore the consequences of reality. So it's all around you. Um, you know what? I, what I like to look at is just um, man. So every two hundred fifty years, there's this revolution pushing back on centralization and moving to decentralization. And today, there's a fifty year technological revolution cycle that's giving us exactly what the world is asking for at the exact right time. So anybody that thinks that cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin is a fad and is going to go away, obviously isn't paying attention because these move in 50 year cycles and it's giving us exactly what we need right now. Now, another thing that I would say is um, chasing these things down to the future. Now, first off, humans are horrible at predicting the future. All we can do is imagine a better version of what we have today. We have cars, well, flying cars, like that's it. Um, we can't imagine new things that we don't have the building blocks for. So right. um, I'm old enough to have uh, started my early, early investing career, investing into these uh, weird things that nobody knew anything about. They were called these internet stocks uh, in the late nineties. And, uh, and um, you know, in 1995 or 1997, we'd talk about the internet and go, you know, it's kind of like a way to send electronic messages. And uh, we have these like chat rooms that we can go chat. And we had this vision that maybe one day we would buy and sell stuff online. We weren't able to do it, but we thought oh, one day we'll have that, right? Um, we had no idea that our car would be hooked to something called a cloud using something called like social media to like navigate us around traffic. <laughs> we didn't know that. And so um, when we look at, we have this technology that's giving us these building blocks, these base building blocks for exactly what we need. Where does that go? Um, the one thing that I would like to say about that is it's way bigger than you and I even know at this point. So I get it. I get it, John. It's like digital gold. Sure. Oh, I get it. It's kind of like digital cash. Okay. No. <laughs> Um, I believe that what we consider money, which you and I talk about extensively, or wealth or value, 
the definition will be forever changed. So for example, pre-internet days. And so when I was trading that internet boom, we didn't have phones with apps. There was no e-trade on the computer. At the time, you had to call the stupid broker to place the trade. It was crazy. But um, before that time, before the internet, what was information? What did people think information was? Well, there was three nightly news channels. And there was one or two newspapers around the country. That was what the information was. Today, a kid in Bali could post a picture on Instagram at the beach. And I know what the waves are like. I know what the beach is like. I know what the scenery looks like. It's, he's created information that's all around me all the time. And I got so much information by him putting that one picture up. So the way that we got it before was in, uh, either the morning newspaper or nightly news. Today, a kid posting a picture somewhere, or today, you know, we're seeing <laughs> the mainstream media won't put pictures of the protests going around the world, but we're seeing them on social media. So even information has changed. I think that even what we consider money and value changes. So for example, back to Bitcoin, um, yeah, it's like digital cash. Sure, it's like digital gold. Um, some people say it's like a commodity. Maybe it's none of those things. It's code. It's just code, right? And so it's like, uh, I think the way that we even look at wealth and value could be forever changed in that code. It's hard, it's, it's hard to imagine what that means um, in 10 or 20 years from now, just like it was hard to imagine that um, electricity was going to allow us to do this one day. Um, but I think it could, it could forever change that, that relationship or the way that we look at it. And in addition, what I'm also really starting to see, and I'm super bullish on, I was at the BitBlock Boom event in Dallas, I think now about two weeks ago, and they had a hackathon going on before that. And we have uh, layers. So technology scales and layers is something to understand with technology cycle, technologically revolution cycles, is that they all work about the same. So if we go back to the automobile boom for, for a minute, um, the first automobile came out, um, everyone got super excited. Venture capital rushed in, the bankers came in. Uh, very quickly, there was 250 automobile manufacturers. Problem was, there was no market. No, there, was, there wasn't people to buy them. And there was no infrastructure. There was no roads. There was no service centers, gas stations, none of that. So the 250 automobile manufacturers went, went bust. Three emerged, Ford, Chrysler, GM. We saw the same thing in the internet, right? So uh, by, by 1990. The internet went live in the 80s, 1990, the first WWW went live, 1994, interesting enough, the very first online purchase happened in 1994, and guess what it was for? Do you know? Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> really? It was for pizza, um, but 1995 was the first IPO, Netscape IPO, and that brought the mad rush of venture capital money. And by the year 2000, you had every .com in the world, pets.com with a famous one, webvan.com, but the same problem was there. No market. There was nobody to buy that stuff online. Two, the infrastructure wasn't there. The internet was too slow. You couldn't even buy anything online in 2000. So guess what happened? They all went bust. Now, eventually, the technology scaled in layers. We started adding layers on top of the TCP IP, and we got the speed, and we got everything we need. If we look at this technological revolution of Bitcoin in the same lens, we saw the same thing. The ICO boom brought all the money in. Very quickly, we scaled the 8,000 projects, uh, managing lettuce on the supply chain, logistics, and who knows what. Um, just like the webvan.com and the pets.com. But the problem is the same. There was no market. Nobody's using it. And there's no infrastructure. Same thing.
But today we're seeing it just like those other cycles, we're seeing it all converge and now it's all being built. So Bitcoin has layer two, it's faster, cheaper, and more private than the 8,000 coins. So what's the need for that? Now we have smart contracts, DLC. So what's the point of all the smart contracts? Um, and uh, anyway, at this hackathon, um, someone designed a phone, a phone that works on the Bitcoin network. Wait, I thought Bitcoin was only digital gold. I didn't know I could have censorship resistant phone calls over it. What the heck? Now there's multiple communities. Now, as a, a content creator, you and I, we could post our podcasts in there and uh, our community could chat between us, but built on Bitcoin, not just like on Telegram or WhatsApp, it's going through the Telegram servers. They could censor that. Now it's going across the Bitcoin network peer to peer. What? Now, just like, uh, again, I'm old, I, old enough to remember having like a thousand DVDs on my wall and a thousand CDs. Today, I don't have any DVDs or CDs. Maybe they're in a box somewhere in storage. I don't have them because I stream it all. Look how much streaming has changed. And so in those community platforms, not only can, I, can people download or stream my content, they can stream money to me at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so we're seeing this, this, this uh, change really fast. Uh, and again, bringing us all these tools that we need at the exact time we need them. Yeah, very well put. And I, I think, again, speaks to the, the value and potential of an immutable trust layer, right? A, a method of sending information uh, and determine it and, and being able to establish via consensus the proper chronology for that information and what what applications does that have? What, what services benefit? What, what human actions benefit from that as a base layer? And I think to your point, what we're gonna discover is it's a hell of a lot more than a digital gold. It's a hell of a lot more than, you know, well, I think our definition of money will greatly expand, like you said, right? So right. I was gonna say it's a hell of a lot more than money, but maybe it's more proper to say what we think of as money is gonna be a hell of a lot more than what it is yeah. right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we talked a second ago about, um, you know, I asked you about talent and competency and wealth tends to concentrate. And you said, you know, yes. Uh, and this is part of the critique of, of capitalism. And I'm obviously totally in your court where I, I don't think the response to that should be, okay, let's, let's try it, a completely different system where we forcefully reallocate resources to try to ameliorate this situation. Like you said, first of all, you know, you can be right now, but 10 years from now, you can be wrong because you get, you develop a solution, you develop a market, you get comfortable in that. And if you're not on your toes, if you don't adapt, if you don't disrupt yourself, then there's a lot of uh, churn at the top. There's a lot of creative destruction. As we said, I mean, Apple computer was started in, in a garage, right? Yeah. And, and, and unseated the incumbent IBM and, yeah. you know, what's going to unseat the behemoth Apple and, you know, because you, when, when you get to a certain scale, you're not as, as uh, you know, laser focused on the, the, the next emerging thing. Some companies are more able to stay up there longer, but, you know, th this churn happens. What the problem is, is that our, again, back to this idea that people often have such a simplistic and narrow view of things in a governance structure like the one we have, and fundamentally enabled by a, a mechanism for uh, 
involuntarily allocating the wealth of those people, i.e. having a money printer, that gives the governance structure an ability to respond to that overly simplistic thinking by those people and say, okay, you're right, you've been disenfranchised by you know, someone competing better than you. So we're gonna take from them and give to you, right? And among other things, what Bitcoin does is it, more so than ever before, it sanctifies the sovereignty of the individual, right? It makes it so you can keep your wealth, you can store your wealth in a, in a manner by which it's not available for reallocation by whatever entity, the state or whoever controls the money printer or whoever controls the levers of society. It's no right. longer available to them. That means that that intervention by a supermarket actor to say, hey, something unfair has gone on here. We're gonna, we're gonna make it right, quote unquote, is less and less possible. So I guess the question I'm trying to get at is like, how do you think that circumstance influences how these cycles that we've been discussing of, of growth concentration, successful competition, and then disintegration into something else. And, and for the record, like when I say the disintegration may not be, you know, is not strictly from, you know, let's say individual to collectivist, capitalist to socialist. I mean, the disintegration could be a big company competes well for a while. And then for whatever reason, it stops competing well, it gets disrupted and it kind of disintegrates, right? But how does that fundamental shift in people's ability to preserve the value of their stored work, labor, capital, energy, change the nature of how these cycles of let's say individual focus to collective focus play out because it would seem to i think most people's minds that well if you put more power in the hands of the individual if you make it so it's it's impossible effectively to steal and reallocate their wealth well what happens then yeah yeah i mean that's a, that's that, that point right there is is the is the key right so I think anybody could understand that um, long-term planning is always better than short-term planning, right? So like um, if I have a long-term goal, if I, if, I can, if I can save and I can build and I can scale long-term, it's going to be better than if I, if I think hand-to-mouth. Like uh, if you look at society, on the lowest end of society, you have the homeless guy that's probably a drug addict and he's only thinking to the next hit. That, that's, that's all he, he can only see that far. As you move up, you have people living paycheck to paycheck and then some people are living month to month. And then on the, all, on the other end, you have people who are planning for multiple generations after them, right? And so if you think about that long-term perspective, um, all of everything good comes from long-term perspective. But if, if I can't live in a way where I can have long-term perspective, what does that do to me? So if I don't know what the laws are going to be next month, for example, which is an actual real scenario that we're in right now, this very second, uh, that's a problem. But also to kind of what your point and these two work together, it's the incentive structure. So if I use a, an extreme analogy, it would be um, over in, in Africa, in the Congo, for example, and you have some warlord, and um, he just comes and steals all the wealth from all the people there whenever he feels like it. And he builds this palace and these mansions, right? So there's two dynamics there. So the villagers, they know that at any moment, they're going to get all their wealth stolen from them. So they're not motivated to build and save and store for the long term because they know it's going to be taken any moment um 
And then that puts them into the situation where every day they have to earn enough to live. So they can't ever get ahead and work on higher value tasks. The, the warlord, he knows that he can go steal wealth whenever he wants. So he's just incentivized to not do anything, but just go steal. If we go into a system that changes that, so now we have a decentralized system like Bitcoin, where now those villagers can store their wealth in Bitcoin and in something that can't be stolen or seized or taken. Well, now that changes the power balance. It changes the incentive structure. So now they can save. So now they can start to plan long-term and it doesn't change things. It's not magic. It's not a magic wand, but over time, over generations, it changes that. But also the warlord realizes, well, shoot, I can't just come steal their wealth. Now I have to provide value to them. That's the key. I have to provide value to them in, in, extort, in order to get that back. So that's, that's an extreme example of a warlord, but it's no different in the United States or Canada either, where the United States is incentivized to do whatever they want. Not only can they tax you as much as they want and all across, uh, they're now talking about you know, minimum taxes across the world and the US is, uh, under the Biden program is gonna increase taxes big time next year. Not only can they increase taxes as much as they want, they can also steal your wealth through inflation silently. And so they're not incentivized to treat you with any form of legitimacy or respect, right? You're just a cash cow that's stuck in a pen, right? And this kind of talks about the sovereign individual. But what about when that cow grows wings? And that's what Bitcoin has done, right? So Bitcoin now and changes that incentive structure where the state can't just inflate away our wealth. They can't steal our wealth through inflation. They can't, um, they can't even steal our wealth through taxation unless we voluntarily decide to give it to them. And that is what changes that power balance structure where then the governments are going to have to think back on this and go, shoot, if we don't provide a valuable service to these people, why would they continue to give us money? How else would we get money? And uh, that's a big shift. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, some of the themes from the sovereign individual, right? How the returns on violence are changed when wealth isn't so easily stolen or confiscated, right? And so <clears throat> jurisdictions will have to compete and actually compete for people. Because if you're mobile, if you can take your income and your wealth anywhere in the world you want to, well, all of a sudden it's an open market, baby. Like who wants Mark Moss, right? Well, yeah. maybe Puerto Rico does, maybe El Salvador yeah. does, you know, and they they can offer services to attract you. And that's great. Um, one of the questions that I have about that, though, is we're in a world today where so much power has concentrated into the hands of these national governments. And, you know, let's say a representation of that is just the enormous military ca uh, capability of many countries, but especially the world powers, right? Nuclear weapons, massive armies, you know, fighter jets, aircraft carriers, all, all the rest of it. In an environment like the one you described, two questions. How do you think the monopoly on violence changes the ownership of it? The, you know, like, yeah, what happens to it generally? <clears throat> and is there an authority that is there still a need for an authority that grants property rights outside of, let's say, the digital domain that can be uh, managed via something like Bitcoin, right? So like meat space, right? A piece of land. Who and how is the, the property and the authority to designate ownership of that property managed in an environment where people's wealth is 
in, in, in an environment where the, the savings and capital dynamics change in the way that we expect Bitcoin to change them? That's a very good question. Uh, and so that now we're kind of future casting. Um, if I might table that question, um, <laughs> only because I think we need to understand the third cycle that's converging right now. Um, because we're talking about the future and how does that shake out, but we have to, uh, we're still talking about the nation state um, or you're, you're asked kind of what system would we have, but I think we kind of have to understand, I think the third cycle that's converging right now, which is the financial revolution cycle. And so um, the, the power right now is consolidated by these giant nation states because they have the power of the financial system. They have the money printer. Mm-hmm. And so um, then it's like, well, how can we do anything against them? Because they're these military powers, as you say, with the nukes and all the money and et cetera. Um, and so we have to understand that. Um, and so what I would say is that politically, socially, culturally, we're ready to reject globalism. Um, now we have a brand new technology that gives us that decentralization that we need. And we also know that technology revolutions lead financial revolution. So cycles. So uh, financial revolution cycles work on about an 80 year time frame. And we can see 80 years ago was the Bretton Woods agreement, which was when the whole world got onto a one world money system, right? The dollar was backed by gold, the rest of the currencies pegged to the dollar. Today, 80 years later, the IMF came out and said, we're calling for a Bretton Woods too. Okay, so that's another new world money system. Uh, of course, we have uh, Mark Carney, who is uh, head of the Bank of England, Bank of Canada, envoy to the UN, the World Economic Forum, um, saying the same thing, right? Uh, we need a great reset. Klaus Schwab wrote the book, we need a great reset of capitalism. Everyone's talking about building back better. So we see there's this, we can see the financial systems ready to be reset. And it's not just that. Um, it, 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 it moves on a bunch of different cycles. So uh, one back to uh, back to um, you know natural law, and so everything is kind of being created by credit. So we have these credit cycles, and they work on about an eighty-year time frame. And um, as credit expands, things grow really fast. If I have to work to save up to buy a house, it takes me a long time to work to save up that house. But if I can get a loan for five houses, I can go buy five houses, right? So things grow really fast, but it also just as fast as it levers up, it also levers back down. And we're kind of at that tipping point where the world's now under about three, $400 trillion of debt. And it's teetering. I mean, the world is trying to crash. It's trying to break down. Uh, but the central banks are determined to keep them inflated no matter what, and they're going to keep pumping in trillions. And so it's like this battle. Uh, but we know we're at the end of that cycle, which is why they're calling for this great reset. They're calling for a Bretton Woods 2 moment. And we can dig into that financial stuff if you want. But the, what I would just say is that what I'm seeing is that everybody's wanting, everybody sees this financial system is crashing. Everybody knows it. They're talking about it. Mainstream media is talking about it. It's not a a big uh, unknown. But what is unknown is a lot of people want to know what's next. Does the dollar lose its reserve status? Or does the dollar remain the reserve currency? Will it be a Chinese yuan? Will it be a a gold-backed yuan? It may be a central bank digital currency. Will it be like the IMF creates an SDR basket out of central bank digital currency? Will we go back to a gold standard? I mean, do you hear all these theories? Everyone's talking about it. But I think what they're missing is that everybody's looking for a centralized answer, right? Mm-hmm. Who will declare what the next world money is? But if we look at the other two cycles, 
the revolution cycle, we realize that the world rejects centralization to goes to decentralization. And we have the technology to give us that right now. And so to me, the answer is, we don't have a centralized answer for a store of value or money. We have a decentralized answer, whereas Bitcoin is my reserve, it's your reserve, it's MicroStrategy reserve, and now it's El Salvador's reserve. Um, but some people will still be on gold and some people will still be on dollars. Yep, totally agree. But I'd, I still would love to get your uh, opinion on... So let, let's, let's assume... Yeah. Well, let, let's assume that, yes, there's going to be CBDCs and there's going to be Bretton Woods too, and all the incumbent powers are going to try all these ridiculous measures to develop a centralized solution and impose it on people. But more and more people over time will opt into Bitcoin. And whenever, you know, and the end, the end game or the punchline is hyper Bitcoinization. Is that right. 10 years? Is that 20 years, 30 years, 50 years? Who knows, right? But let's just assume that. What is the role of, of the authority of force in the world after yeah. that time? So um, I am not, um, you know, I'm, First of all, I think it happens this decade. So I think that uh, by people adopting Bitcoin, we're basically taking away the power that the government has. So the government, yes, has a monopoly on force and violence, to your point, the military, but a military without money is worthless. Right? That's how the Roman Empire fell. They, they expanded so far they couldn't afford to pay the soldiers anymore. I mean, Venezuela had the army, didn't do them any good either, right? So military takes money. So really, yeah, they have the force, but it's the money is their power. And so by defunding them, we take away their power. Now, I think that, like I said, I think that happens this decade, what I'm calling for like the end of the nation state. I think we see the end of this giant nation state, which I believe is old technology, creative destruction. We don't need that technology anymore. Now we have new technology. To answer your question, what does that look Look like um i think that uh and again i don't know about these labels i don't know if i fully agree with like a anarchist type uh cap you know anarchist type viewpoint but i think um it looks like it's a much more decentralized and a lot smaller so kind of like the united states used to be 50 independent nations 50 independent states I think it would probably be even smaller than that. Some areas might be bigger, some areas might be smaller, um, but maybe it's city size, you know, where we have cities that are kind of run a little bit privately, no different than a homeowners association. So um, I used to live in a gated neighborhood. It was a homeowners association and there was a governing body of that association and they decided what the houses had to conform to and what you could and couldn't do in the street and things like that. And I think we'll see that type of a, um, a society where we have smaller areas, maybe they're large cities or states, um, that if I don't like the rules in that neighborhood, I, I, which I didn't, I moved to another neighborhood that didn't have those rules. That's why I don't live there anymore. Um, and I think we'd see the same thing. And we are, obviously, people are leaving California in mass going to Texas. People are leaving New York in mass going to Florida. So I think it looks like that. Um, like I said, probably smaller. Um, the key piece, and this is what I think actually leads to that breakup, and enables it to continue going is competition. That's what enables it. So um, Texas and Florida have outcompeted California and New York. Both governors are on the chopping block losing their jobs right now, <laughs> um, right? And, and it's through competition. So um, what happens when you kind of already mentioned earlier, if I can, per sovereign individual, leave the country with my wealth. Now, I'm old enough to have friends that 
I grew up under the core and the, the Berlin wall didn't fall till after I graduated, uh, till I was in high school. Um, but I had friends whose families moved from these oppressive regimes, moved from Afghanistan, Iran. One of my best friends came from South Africa. And uh, when they came, they couldn't bring their real estate. They couldn't carry their gold. They couldn't get their money out of the bank, but they left anyway. They, they came penniless. But how much does that really affect a nation if they can keep all your wealth? But what if I can take my wealth with me? So if the United States, the Western world wants to clamp down so hard that you're not even now able to run your business or move freely, but another country says, hey, come over here, you can live free and you can start a business. Well, then people with means, unfortunately, not good for the poor people, but some of the people that have the means to do that will go to those areas and that nation will do better than others. So other nations will say, hey, well, you can come over here too. And more people go there. And eventually those big nations will lose so many people. They'll be forced to, not by force, not, by, not with nukes, but they'll be forced to relax their, um, their regulations to hope people stay and even come back. Now, I can say this pretty confidently because, again, history. So, for example, we're seeing it in real time and right now in California, New York. But if we go back historically, look at China. So China beca um, became like, the most common, you know, whatever, I'm not going to go all the way back through history, but China was a very communist country and they had it locked down and their people were very poor. They're one of the poorest countries in the world. Um, in the eighties, they decided that they needed to introduce a little bit of capitalism. Mao died, Deng took over and he opened up a little bit of capitalism, some free trade ports, things like that. And just opening up a little bit exploded China to where they're at today. And so my point is, why did they go from a full communist country that they had complete control over to introducing capitalism? Because they had to, to compete competition. Um, so I think, I think that's the route that we go. I think we see the smaller nation states, uh, cities, states um, that allow us to move from one to the next. I think competition will be a big integral part that will keep that system going. And the reason why, let me just say this last piece and we'll dig in. Um, the reason why is that because I can store my wealth in Bitcoin, the state can't steal it through inflation or seizing my bank accounts. They, everyone will be forced to compete uh, by providing value. And that is what breaks that cycle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I... <clears throat> Again, I totally agree. And I think what's likely to happen is that, you know, because we, we talk about this a lot in the space, but that in an environment where the money loses its value, everything else in that market acquires a monetary premium, right? I.e. inflates and right. it becomes more expensive to account for the value be being dispersed from the money, right? In an, in an ideal society or an ideal market and an ideal money, and I think that's what Bitcoin is, all the monetary, the, 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 the full idea and value of money is contained in one particular thing. And that facilitates the proper ordering of everything else and, and trade and structuring of everything else. What's happening now is the opposite. The, the money is leaking its value all over the place. And that's why everything from used cars to beef to homes to equities are all adopting this monetary, to land are adopting a monetary premium. I think in a Bitcoin world, when Bitcoin siphons back all that monetary premium, because it is the best store of value, everything in our world becomes way cheaper. And not just way cheaper in the sense that, you know how when we were growing up, like your parents would say, 
chocolate bar was five cents when I was a kid. And you were like, wow, yeah. things were so cheap back then. You know, it's a dollar now. Yeah. We'll tell our kids like chocolate bar was two bucks, you know, yeah. or, or, or 2000 Satoshis when, when, you know, at this period of time, they're like, what? So chocolate bar is only two Satoshis now. That's crazy. Yeah. You know? And, and so our era is going to seem so much more expensive, but not only will we rectify that monetary uh, perversion that inflation is causing, but I think because of what Bitcoin represents in the, in the quality of the money that it is, it will also mean that we get to reap the benefits of all the pro productivity increases that, uh, you know, a complex dynamic society produces. The benefits of such aren't being siphoned off by the, the, the money creators and the people that have that power. And so our material world or our meat space world becomes less and like more and more inexpensive, less and less valuable, let's say, because more of the value is contained in Bitcoin. And so I think among other things, that means that the contentiousness over assets in the material world will decrease because their relative val value will be lower, right? So yeah. like the, the incentive to jack someone for their house or for their land or for their car or whatever will be way lower because most people would be able to afford houses, cars, land, et cetera. The, <clears throat> the, the amount of one's wealth held in those assets will be greatly diminished in relative terms relative their to their savings held in Bitcoin. But I still wonder, and I, you know, I doubt you may not have an answer, but I'd love to hear your speculation. Is a sovereign authority, and in it seems like sovereign authority in the material realm of, of human culture and society is force, is that required? Yes, jurisdictions will compete, but what if I go to, you know, bumfuck nowhere, current day Wyoming, future day land of the free, nobody owns it. And I say, well, that's a lovely 10 acres of land. I'm going to put my farm there and, and do my thing. And, you know, some authority says, sure, John, I'll sell you that land for, for 10,000 Satoshis. But then someone else comes along and says, well, who gave them the right to sell you that land? Right. Was it theirs? Who, who owned that? Yeah. You know, so... What do you think is the role necessity of sovereign authority in the physical realm in a future? Yeah. And, and just the last, last thing I'll say before I, I hand it over to you, I think the prospect of this like anarchist society where everybody protects themselves, everyone has their own money, everyone's 3D printing weapons, you know, like this kind of lawless wild west notion scares a lot of people. But I actually think it's quite possible that because of the way that the material physical world will be in relative terms devalued against the core savings held in, in an like in a unconfiscatable way, i.e. Bitcoin, the, the incentives to violence and the incentives to theft and everything will be so greatly diminished that I think our capability of cooperating peaceably in a wild quote unquote wild west sort of scenario will be far greater than we can currently imagine like when 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 everyone has far more independence when there's a lot less dependence on other structures and as a result there's a lot less anxiety about one's own security and comfort and safety i think that puts us in a better situation to cooperate where currently we might think something is too contentious to rely on cooperation to resolve it, right? So I think, yeah. as you said, with, with technology, like we can only predict so far, we can say 
how cars might improve or they'll go from cars to flying cars, but we can't talk about trans trans their teleportation because right. it's just not, we don't, we can't, we don't have yeah. that technology right now. So I think the same, same rule should be applied to how humans can act or interact in the future. But nevertheless, I'd love to get your take on sovereign authority in a Bitcoin world. Yeah, you know, I mean, I guess I have to be conscious of my own bias as I started out talking about, right, normalcy bias and whatnot. And so um, it's hard for me to imagine, you know, something different than what we have now. I would say, um, one, obviously, I mean, obviously storing your money in a virtual Bitcoin, whatever, your wealth, your value, whatever you want to call it is great. But to the end, to your point, I mean, we're always going to need physical stuff. We're still going to need land. We're still going to need to grow food and uh, need a place to have your family, et cetera. Um, and I do, I do agree with your thesis that um, there wouldn't be as much, much need for um, theft because people would be doing better. So I think if you look at, you know, like WTF happened in 1971, you can see like the incarceration rate took off like crazy after 1971. So because it got much harder for families to live and survive, uh, people to get ahead, then that increases the need to go theft, you know, thieve and rob and steal whatnot. Um, but at the end of the day, I believe that I believe in good and evil. And I believe that there is evil. And I believe that uh, uh, there's always going to be somebody trying to shortcut and you know, thieve and, and rob and steal, regardless of how easy it is to make money. So I think that's still going to be a problem. Um, I think, uh, I think, you know, the role of government is to protect private property rights. And I think we're always going to need somebody to pr provide that. Uh, back to my gated neighborhood example, we had a gated neighborhood with our own security. And uh, that security would check everybody in and out of the gate, and they would patrol the neighborhood. And um, so we had our own security and, uh, that the association had rules that would protect our private property, make sure our neighbors didn't infringe on us. Um, if people came in, which happened sometimes we have a homeless problem in California, um, the security would deal with that. So I think there's always going to be a need for that. Um, I don't think for me, I mean, and, you know, I'm a strong second amendment supporter and I got a lot of guns, but I certainly don't think living in like a wild, wild west scenario where people were carrying guns and you had to duel people in the street. Like that doesn't sound like a world that I'd want to live in. So I think, uh, I think having that some sort of a, I don't know if I'd want to use the word sovereign individual, but we'd need or organization, but we, I think we'd still need, like I said, these micro cities or states that would have that, uh, you know, responsibility of restoring or keeping the order, keeping private property rights. I think it could be done, you know, through private companies. So just like my gated neighborhood example, um, while I was there, we changed security companies. So, um, you know, um, they wanted to change security companies. Some of the residents didn't want to because we had used the same one for so long. We knew all the guards. They had been there forever. And if we move, we don't have those relationships. And there was cost concerns and whatnot. Um, but we did. And we ended up changing security companies. Um, now, where some of the anarchists uh, like Svetsky and I have had conversations, um, you know, he said there won't be a need to vote anymore. But it's like, well, who's going to who's going to get the bids for the service companies? Who's going to decide which ones are better? And then who's going to decide which one we go with? Like at some like who's going to who's going to do that work? And then who's going to choose who that person is? So I think there's always going to be some form of voting going on. Um, I think we're still going to need governing bodies that can hire and fire and change um, security companies um, road. You know, who's going to build the roads? I mean, they'll 
hire people to build the roads, et cetera. So there's always going to need to be people to make those decisions and there'll always be voting just in a smaller area um, that will be heavily driven by competition. So if my area becomes unsafe or my property is being stolen or my land gets taken, well, I'm certainly all the rich people will leave that area to go to another area that has stronger private property rights. That area will suffer because of that. And I think that competition loop kind of keeps everybody honest. Yeah, I think it's inevitable that this will play out in various different ways as a process over the course of several decades, right? Before we ultimately figure out again, like who and what is the sovereign ex exception, right? Who, who, who does, you know, what does authority look like in a Bitcoin denominated world? I guess that's the crux of the question, right? What does authority look like in a hyper Bitcoinized world? That, you know, that, that's super interesting to me. I think, you know, just knowing us as humans, we're, um, you know, we're social creatures, right? And so we want to live in tribes, like it's been that way forever. Um, and so we want to live in tribes and then, and then we have hierarchies and, and nature builds hierarchies, right? And so um, people develop hierarchies for different things. Um, I just think uh, as much as society today wants to tell you that stuff's old and is irrelevant, it's not. And I think we'll still continue to keep those uh, social agreements um, as tribes and we'll still develop those hierarchies. Yeah, I, I think I agree. And I, I think it's really, really, you know, I talk about on this show a lot, like the personal transformations that, that people experience, some people, many people, as a result of learning about and engaging with Bitcoin. And I think we're on a, the precipice of an equally transformative revolution uh, from that perspective and that side of things with people. And, you know, again, when I use the word, the word wild west and the first image that comes to your mind is like people dueling, carrying right. around guns and all this <laughs> kind of stuff, you know, that's natural, right? Because that's the image we have of it. But in the manner I was thinking of it was in terms of everyone having so, such a high degree of independence and control over their own their own lives determination, right? A, high, a higher degree than ever of self-determination. And as a result of that, a higher degree than ever of personal responsibility, you know? And as a result of that, a higher degree than ever of personal and interpersonal understanding. And as a result of that, a higher degree than ever of individual philosophy and broader philosophy. And, and so, you know, again, I'm, I'm, people will call me, you know, to say that I'm being a little bit too utopian here, but, you know, it's fun to speculate, right? And I think- yeah. When again, like, yes, I agree, the world will be on a Bitcoin standard in roughly 10 years, let's say. When will the genuine renaissance happen where th these transformate these individual transformations take place to such an extent that we wind up living in a society in which people interact in a totally fundamentally different way? Yes, still competence hierarchies and, and dominance hierarchies of various kinds, but far more able to to, for lack of a better, more specific term, interact with so much dependence and such a high degree of autonomy. You know, so yes, I, I maybe I have the, the capability to contradict you or, or, be, or get in conflict with you, but how we end up resolving those conflicts is completely different than how we conceptualize them today. So people may have the same degree of autonomy of a Wild West or actually far more, but the result the behavior that results from that autonomy is not what we would consider wild west behavior of 200 years ago or whenever it was, you know? Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I would agree with a lot of that. 
um, I could see how we might go from, and I haven't really thought a lot about this, but say that uh, 30 to 40% of society today is really trying to make themselves better, their careers better. Um, maybe that moves from 30% to 80, 80 or 80%. Um, but I think, um, there's always going to be people in society that are evil. And I think there's always gonna be people in society that are lazy and, uh, aren't going to want to better themselves. Um, there's always gonna be people that want to take the shortcut. I would agree that that number goes from 70 to 20%. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think those people are always going to be there. Um, and then, and then you're also going to have the situation where again, because men are evil and want shortcuts, um, that power that they get um, will start to corrupt them. And then they're going to want to try to, you know, take pe private property and whatnot. So I think, I, I, I don't think the problem ever goes away to, to your point, like your, your utopian society view. Um, I don't think that ever goes away. Maybe it, I do agree. It could definitely minimize having the money can fix a lot of that. Um, but I think at the end of the day, someone's always going to need to enforce those rules. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I, I wonder what kind of social enforcement will look like when, you know, 90 out of 100 people are these sovereign principled people. And because, you know, what we see on Twitter these days, I mean, of course, it's brash and it's crazy. And I mean, this is the beginning stages of, of something really unique coalescing. So we, we can't infer too much about it at these early stages. But there is clearly a holding of people to a higher set of principles than out in the broader world. Right. And so, again, fast forward 50 to 100 years on that. And how how much of a social constraint does and I mean, a positive one, right, to, to constrain, let's say, the evil members of society, uh, that's that the, the majority is so intent on enforcing certain principles and values. And how much does that diminish the ability of that evil to express itself? Right. Obviously, I'm just speculating, but it's interesting questions. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. I was going to say, I think, um, you know, as I, I think in the, in the beginning, we talked about, you know, everything good comes from that long-term perspective. And so you have that hierarchy of needs. And so um, in my extreme example of the Congo, uh, when people are forced every day to go out and find sustenance just to live that day, they can't think about longer-term things. Um, and that's an extreme example. But, um, you know, in the 40s and 50s, um, you could have one person in the family working and you had a family unit because of that. And, um, you know, the social fabric of the, of the world was or the country was better. Um, whereas today, um, it, it used to take 20, 23 weeks. Now it takes 53 weeks to have the American dream, but there's only 52 weeks in a year. So people can't even have the American dream. They're racking up debt. Um, divorce is the number, you know, the number one cause of divorce is finance problems. Um, you have the incarceration rate. And so um, that month, the, the lack of being able to provide um, or having to work 80 hours to, to provide uh, breaks down that social fabric. Um, and causes all types of problems. Um, so I, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, I think when people don't have to work as much, they can pursue other things, um, build to make themselves better, personal development, helping other people, um, you know, even just being in the community more, et cetera. Um, so it definitely goes, like I said, I don't know, 30% to 80%, um, but uh, yeah, still, still somewhat of a problem there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know you got to bail soon, so I got, I got two more for you. But on, just to put a capstone on that point, you know, we, on this point in particular, and we talked about these recurring cycles, right? Broadly characterized as like people becoming complacent by how th good things are and then things deteriorating and requiring, you know, a, a regrouping and a, to, to build them back up again. 
many, not all, but a vast majority of ancient cultures and particularly the most successful cultures in our human story, they used ritual very liberally. And I think one of the functions of, of ritual is actually to try to communicate and instill and remind and enforce the importance of certain things, be they mm -hmm. philosophies, practices, ideas, principles, values, et cetera. And in an environment we're moving into where the way that we, the, the way that we generate social cohesion, cooperation, success is not so much the all-powerful state saying, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. It's we have a lot more freedom and auto autonomy, right? But recognizing that it may very well be the case that no matter how much technology liberates the individual, this cycle of creating such good times that we forget what created them and then we slip back into bad times, it might be inevitable, right? It might be unavoidable. <clears throat> and this is why I think as we move into the Bitcoin era, I think we're going to see a pretty, you know, very interesting, but possibly dramatic revival of ritual. And obviously they haven't really been developed yet, although I bet if we look hard enough, we could see seedlings of them, but to, to, to as a recognition that, okay, things are going to be really good. We've, we've put the constituent parts together that things are going to be really good at after a transitionary phase. We realize the danger of things being good. Okay, what are the fundamental things that we believe as a culture, individuals, a society that are the most important to remind ourselves of intermittently so that the very things that make th everything good can be preserved and held up as best or as long as possible? And so again, I don't have any idea what those are going to be, but I do think we'll recognize that need and ritual will reemerge as a, as a, because we just live our lives. We wake up, you know, it's Christmas, it's Easter, it's Halloween, and you know, it's our birthday. And that's, that's the extent of our ritual. I think we'll have far richer rituals yeah. uh, become a major part of our life as a result of recognition of this circumstance. I would agree with you that they're absolutely necessary. Um, back to 1984, the book, um, you know, written in the 40s, um, he talks about how they destroyed all of history, right? They wanted to get rid of the past. They didn't want, they didn't want you to know about the past. And one of the things that they really don't want is they, they don't want you to think back on the past fondly, like, if we could just go back to the way it was. And so today we can see they've done just that. They've ripped down the statues. They're destroying the books. Um, they've recharacterized the founding fathers of the United States as horrible people um, and horrible times because they don't want us to think fondly of the past. Um, and so they've changed that. Now back to the rituals, um, you know, there's another big lie that we're being told today, which is that um, we, you know, people we identify based off of sexual preference or gender or race or things like that, which is a lie. We align on, we, we align on values and uh, the higher those values, the more alignment we have. And so the United States used to have a set of values that immigrants from all over the world would come to the United States because of the values that were present, like the, the right to life, liberty, and having the pursuit of happiness, right? Um, and so what happened, though, is we started bringing, well, one, uh, simultaneously, um, the U.S. started kind of rejecting those values 
breaking down those values. And we started uh, bringing a lot of immigrants in that don't share those values. So instead of wanting to come and be an American, now they want to come be whatever, you know, and, and you see these Vietnamese communities or, or Muslim communities or whatever, and they don't want to assimilate in. And so it's broken down these values. And so uh, the values are important. Um, and then to your point, like these rituals, I mean, so growing up as a kid, we would stand up and we would pledge allegiance to the flag, right? And that would be an example of that. Um, today, you you know, they don't even want to do that anymore. Uh, they don't want to communicate what those values are. And I think that even goes bigger. So um, I read a book about um, passing legacy on down to your kids and, uh, and your grandkids. And even in that book, they talked about how it's important to sit down at the table with your kids and talk about my fan, our family, our family was this, our family did this. This is what our family is. You're, you're this way because you're from this family. And it's important to do that. This book was talking about the importance to do that with your family to pass that down. But to your point, it's important as a country to have those shared values and then have some sort of a ritual or something to continue to pass those down. So um, I would say I would agree with you because it's probably the only way it can work. Everyone has to buy in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, all right, last one, man. Uh, and kind of circling way back to how this started and, and my attempts at communicating with, with people in my life. This is all, you know, we're, we're very optimistic about the mid to long term future, right? But I think we both realize just how ingrained and, you know, and ultimately how dependent people are on the systems as they are today. And as the, because of that, as those systems break down, well, then people who are reliant and dependent on it are going to suffer the consequences of that breakdown. And so, you know, what do you see as the next five to 10 years? What does it look like? And, you know, if you're your average person, you got your retirement fund, you got your index funds, you got your financial advisor and all this stuff, like, given what's on the horizon, what would be your recommendation for how to prepare it, not financial advice, all disclosure, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So this is probably where we should have started. So maybe in editing, you'll move this to the front, <laughs> but um, what's the urgency, right? What's the urgency? What's really at stake here? Now, I've laid out the case of three different cycles at three different um, lengths that are all converging right now, but I don't think I've fully conveyed uh, what's really at stake here. And so while, um, as I've made the case, um, throughout history, it's just a constant repeating of cycles from oppression to revolu revolution. Um, I believe that that cycle that's been going on from all of humanity potentially ends this decade. That cycle is broken and it doesn't continue to repeat anymore. And the reason why I say that is because of technology. Now, technology is a tool, but it can be used as good and bad. Um, and unfortunately, uh, much of the good technology that I've always wanted is now being weaponized and used against us. And um, so things that make us better, like, I mean, I grew up watching the Jetsons as I was a kid, and I dreamed of like being able to talk to my house and have it do things. But now I'm afraid to have Amazon Alexa because it's going to spy on me, right? <laughs> like, um, like uh, you know, so we have this technology, but it entraps us. And so what we've already seen, it's already been admitted by the likes of Facebook, you know, using their AI, they're uh, manipulating people's feeds to get them to think certain ways. Um, 
now, you know, we have extreme censorship that's like um, censoring what people are saying and sharing online. I tried to send somebody a DM, an article yesterday, a DM on Twitter, and it blocked it to them. And it said, uh, do you know this person? Uh, and they had to like accept it before they could receive the link that I sent them. One of my friends right. that I go with all the time. So anyway, um, they can manipulate our feed. Uh, they can censor us. Um and I think, you know, with the social credit score system that they're trying to implement across the world right now, where you even say anything wrong and next thing you know, you can't fly. I mean, you and I, we're hardcore liberty, liberty lovers, and we're already censoring what we say. We, I've noticed mm -hmm. it a couple of times on the show. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I, what I believe is that um, we're basically at a battle for the rest of humanity at this point, where either technology creates this perfect prison that we may never get out of. Um, because revolutions start by a few people getting together and sharing ideas, and then the, the information grows, um, and then eventually enough people can coordinate that they act, right? But what happens if we can't ever get together and share ideas? What happens if we don't have any way to communicate and coordinate? They could effectively make sure that revolutions never happen ever again, which is, of course, exactly what they're trying to do. Um, the main goal of the state is to keep its power. And in order to do that, they have to keep any civil disobedience um, at, at bay. And so um, I believe with technology, we're almost there. I mean, we're almost there. Of course, um, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum wrote a book called The Fourth Industrial Revolution. In that book, he outlines this whole process, transhumanism, and basically put chips in our brain to hook to this AI cloud. Um, I mean, that's their goal for us. And so technology is almost there that creates this perfect prison. So the cycle ends and we just end up in slavery for all of humanity but but we have another technology that's our tool and it's our tool to fight back and that's bitcoin that's decentralized technology so one we can one defund the state we can take their money away two we can move everything on decentralized platforms that they can't control and i believe that we win and if we win here i believe that we also break the cycle because the cycle is always man manipulating, changing rules, using force, um, and with the money printer. And if we take that away, we could also break the cycle for the rest of humanity. So I believe that the battle for human, <laughs> and I know this is a big claim, the soul but like the, of humanity, the bat, the battle for the fate of humanity is in this battle right here. And either my kids and my grandkids are going to live the rest of their life as, um, you know basically in a, in a, in a matrix type, Pods. you know, pr prison, um, or my kids and grandkids and great grandkids will live a life of freedom. And I believe that battle is going to be, is going to be won or lost over this decade or probably over the next four or five years. Um, now that doesn't mean that we still won't have recessions. And I mean, we're always going to have ebbs and flows. That's just how life works. We have seasons. There's no way around that. Um, but we'll, We'll either be stuck in the slave system, the matrix, or we'll be without it. Um, and that's the urgency. And so for anybody that, uh, you know, is debating where they're at in this fight, um, just ask yourself, like, the world is trending, trending to totalitarianism at a rapid rate, at a very rapid rate. Are you okay with it today? Are you okay with where it's going? Are you okay with where it will be when your kids are, um, you know, older? And if the answer is no, then you have no chance. You have no choice but to join in this fight. You have no choice but to use the only one tool that we have to fight back right now. Uh, that's the urgency. Yeah. I, um, you know, now, there's I financial know. urgencies we can get into too, but I don't know if they're quite as powerful as that. 
You mean the opportunity? Well, I mean, you know, in addition, I mean, so if we want to talk well, about actually, like, yeah, wow. please, please do. Cause, cause to be honest, you know, you may be right. You may be wrong about whether this is the ultimate battle of, of this particular cycle, but even still, like when you say we're sliding into totalitarianism, like at a rapid rate, obviously I couldn't agree more. Most people don't see it. Right. But hitting people in their pocketbooks, you know, everyone's sensitive to that. And, and yeah. this is why I kind of opened it by saying like, look, the Venezuelan stock market has done great over the last decade. Yeah. Would you want to be invested there? No, right. because it's, you have to be, be careful of your denominator, right? They're denominating yeah. equities in the Bolivar or whatever the you know, yeah. currency they're pushing on people. We're denominating in Canada and the Canadian dollar, you guys in the US dollar. Don't, you know, that's almost like a spell to trick you that things are okay or that things are going well. Right. You need to recognize that they're not, right? And the signals that you're relying on to, to get your impression about how things are going are almost all false. Yeah. Right. So that's you, a, you need that's to, a great you need point. to, you need to consider that and then realize that Bitcoin is not some hot investment to get rich quick. It's a way to make sure that you're receiving proper signal and you're protecting yourself against the chaos. Yeah. So that's a great point. So um, if, if we understand that money is communication, it communicates between us. Um, and really to your point, as you said, it's the signal price, the price is the signal. And so what happens is um, when the government, when the Fed prints $8 trillion over the last year and a half and dumps that into the economy, then the signal gets distorted. So for example, um, well, when the signal is distorted, how can we make good decisions? So for example, homes in the United States have never been higher. They're at all-time highs. Should I buy a house now or not? That's a big decision I need to make. How can I make that decision when the signal is distorted. So let me give you an example. In US dollars, homes have never been more expensive. But if I priced the homes in gold, what does it tell me? Well, if we go to 1970, 1971 is when we broke the standard, right? So 1970, the year before, it was about 650 ounces of gold to buy the median home. Today, it's 200. So homes have never been more expensive in US dollars but they're half less than half the price in gold. Okay, that's just gold. What about oil? Okay, it used to be 6,000 barrels of oil. Now it's about 2,000 barrels of oil. Well, priced in oil, it's cheaper. Okay, that's, those, are, those are commodities. What about food? Well, rice, it used to be 47,000 tons of rice. Today, it's 24,000 tons of rice. It used, in 2010, it was, uh, who knows how many Bitcoin? Today, it's only like two or three. Um, so it's like uh, the price being the signal so distorted um, are homes expensive or cheap compared to what? Relative to what? Priced in what? Priced in dollars that are distorted. Yeah, they've never been more expensive, but priced in real world assets, they're, back, they're actually way cheaper. So that's one way to look at it. And I think there's like this paradigm shift, which most people are seeing, but they just haven't quite made the paradigm shift is that um, it's really all about purchasing power. So for example, um, I mean, just, just like that example, right? Where um, the US dollar um, doesn't purchase as much, but other, other stuff does. And so I guess what I would say is like, people realize this right now, here's kind of the urgency. Everybody realizes like, shoot, I better go buy a house right now because next year they're going to be so much more expensive. I better go buy a used car right now because it's going to be so much more expensive. I better go buy lumber right now or food right now. Cause it'd be so much more expensive in the future. Uh, what they're saying to themselves is not that things are getting so expensive. What they're realizing is that their dollar is dropping in value so fast.
-hmm. And it's just a little paradigm shift. But I think if they grasp that, that's the first thing. The other thing that I would say is that, um, is that, uh, the federal reserve, the central banks increased the money supply by 24% last year, the money supply. So when you have more money, chasing the same amount of goods and services, prices naturally go up on those. Well, now we have supply chain issues. So, so the goods and services are actually dropping. So the money's going up while the goods and services are going down. And so we see price inflation happening everywhere. So the money supply went up by 24%. Real estate went up exactly 24%. Used cars went up 30%. Lumber went up 300%. Um, so prices are going all over the place. Now, you know, the government's number will tell you it's going up by five and a half percent. But even if you take that number, which of course isn't true, even at that number, that means in four years, you're going to lose 25% of your purchasing power. 25% of your wealth will be gone in four years. Like, I'm not okay with that. That's a third number. The reality is it was 24% in the last year. You've lost 25% of your wealth in the last year. If you were going to buy a home, you buy 25% less home. That's a that's 25% in a year. That means over four years, you've lost well over half your purchasing power. Oh, half of your money is gone in four years if you're holding dollars. If you're buying assets like real estate that are paying you in dollars. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is, will the government continue on this path of printing money or will they turn around and have austerity and go back on a budget and i think if you understand a little bit about what's going on you realize pretty quickly that they're going to continue spending i mean they're already talking about another three and a half trillion dollar bill they haven't even got the last one and a half trillion dollars through um you look at the entitlements that we have the you know the aging population social security medicare benefits etc um, and it's not just the united states it's all the developed nations so the, europe the ecb's having the same problems canada's having the same problems australia's having the same problems japan's having the same problems um and so when you understand that, you realize real quickly that in Canada and the United States, they're going to have to continue to print 25% more money each year, if not more. Um, and so um, that means, as I said, right, and uh, 25, you're losing 25% of your wealth a year in dollars. Can you afford to do that? Now, that might seem extreme, but like in Lebanon, they saw 100% of their wealth gone in a year. In Venezuela, you've mentioned they saw 2,500% inflation in a year. That means you lost all your wealth in about a month. <laughs> so um, the, at some point, unfortunately, at some point, everybody's going to hit their point. The urgency is going to be high enough. I would say you've just lost 25% of your wealth in a year. The urgency should be pretty dang high. Right. Yeah. Extremely well put. And I, you know, people, because being in Bitcoin, both of us, I'm sure get this all the time. People are like, what do you think the price of Bitcoin is going to be in, in five years, right? It's, it's, people are saying it's going to be 200,000, 500,000, a million. Like, do you think that's going to happen? And I try to get people to reframe it and not like, I, I don't want you thinking you're going to sell for dollars. I want right. you to think that your gain is going to be the incremental and likely dramatic increase in the purchasing power of your Bitcoin exactly. so that Bitcoin functions as a portal to a cheaper world for you right yes. to a more abundant world, you know, stop thinking about some sexy investment that's going to make you a few million bucks. Think of it as a savings vehicle that increasingly makes your world cheaper and cheaper. And what does that mean? It means you can have more world, you can have more yes. life. That's what it means. And if you think about it in that terms, in those terms, and recognize 
that it, as you say, now it's not really a choice, it's a necessity, right? Because even if on paper, you're keeping pace with things, one, you're probably not keeping pace as well as you think you are. And two, you're leaving yourself subject to the increasing encroachment of the state apparatus to tax you in various ways, tax you through inflation, tax you directly, inhibit the flows of your money, where you can send it, who you can send it to, you know, all of these measures of control are, are the, the noose is tightening, right? And Bitcoin is the complete antithesis of that. It's total freedom and money and it's access to a more abundant world, you know? So uh, to, put, to put a number on that, in 2017, it would take 30,000 Bitcoin. 30,000 Bitcoin. Today, it's about 300. To buy the median home in the United States, it'd be about 2017. Of if Bitcoin was a if, if Bitcoin was a thousand bucks, take you three hundred, right? So if, Bit, if I'm sorry, three. I'm sorry, you're right. Three three hundred. It'd be about three hundred Bitcoin, right? If Bitcoin was a thousand dollars today, it takes about thirty. Mm -hmm. So homes used to be three hundred Bitcoin. Today, homes are thirty Bitcoin. Right. Right. So that kind of illustrates your point. They've gotten way cheaper. You can buy way more home today. If you were using Bitcoin as your denominator, it used to be 300. Today it's 30. Right. In a couple of years, it'll be three. And then it'll be 300,000 right. sats. And then it'll be 30,000 sats. And, you know, that, that's all indications are pointing to that's, that's the way things are going to continue to go, you know? So, uh, yeah, I guess my message to anyone listening is if, if, you, if you've been waiting uh, to make the move, make it and uh, make it in a big way, because I think it's really the only way to protect yourself against what's coming. Uh, Mark, you have to go to my webcam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So your camera's cutting out on you. So maybe that's a good, uh, you know, time to put a pin in it. Uh, I really appreciate the, the chat, man. I, I love your work, love what you're doing and love how you talk about these concepts, promote the cause of liberty and freedom and responsibility and, and financial security. I, I think it's awesome. Uh, and I appreciate it very much. Anything you wanted to say before we shut this thing down? Um, yeah, I would, I would just add that, um, like, I, I made a couple of big claims. Like, one, I think by the end of the decade, we kind of see the end of the nation state, you know, over the next four or five years, this battle rages on. Um, and so um, while I um, actually have a message of great hope, it's not doom and gloom. I believe, and I think we both agree, that on the other side of this is massive hope and prosperity. It's going to be a much better world, one that I'm excited for my kids to be able to inherit. Um, unfortunately, uh, from here to there, isn't going to be so nice and pretty. And that's why, you know, to the point you and I are both kind of trying to create that sense of urgency, like take the, take the actions now. And I think, um, a couple of things you need to do one, I mean, just be mentally prepared for that Two, be prepared to, unfortunately be prepared to possibly move. It's the competition that's going to break things eventually. And so, um, you know, having to leave a jurisdiction that doesn't uh, treat you well, um, you know, go where yourself, go where your money's treated best. Um, I would also encourage people to try to learn some high value skills that can be done remotely, either work remotely online or learn skills that can be done remotely online. High value skills are typically ones that are done around the money. So sales and marketing, you could learn Facebook ads or copywriting or video editing, um, you know, content creation, uh, article writing, et cetera, um, things like that. And then, and then ultimately think about things in terms of purchasing power and ways that you can move your wealth into places that will um, conserve your wealth. Because uh, being able to survive these next five, six years 
uh, with your wealth intact is what's going to be the main ingredient for you being able to live that better life in the future. Um, no different than we've seen countries many times fall in the past and the people that were able to have that better life in the new world. So those are things that I would encourage. Um, if I may, John, um, I'm actually having a live event conference in Miami in November um, with the theme specifically how to survive the coming great reset. And we're going to be basically covering all these topics from the political side, the financial side, what's at stake, how to preserve your wealth, how to build additional wealth, how to think about uh, sustainable living onshore, offshore living passports, et cetera. Um, so if this urgency is scary and you want to know exactly what to do to survive it, you may want to consider coming to the live event and meeting other people that also think the same way with some real solutions. That's awesome, man. How do people get more info about that? Um, so I don't know if you can link it in the show notes down below. Sure. Um, and then if you like these topics, I mean, you can just follow me on YouTube, Mark Moss, or I'm pretty active on Twitter, just the number one Mark Moss as well. Sweet. Well, man, I'm sure we will discuss these themes uh, many more times over the next uh, few months and years. So uh, I look forward to doing that as our thinking evolves and as the situation evolves. So uh, until then, take care of yourself. Thanks so much, John. All right. See you, brother. Let's go.